0: This episode is sponsored by 5.11 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 5.11 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 5.11tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 5.11tactical.com and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 5.11 Tactical, You can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 420 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Justin Kingsley. Now, Justin has spent his career working with PR and branding and has worked on a diverse set of projects from Indiana Jones and Star Wars to the Olympics and FIFA. And also Georges St-Pierre, one of my favorite martial artists. So we discuss a host of topics from his early life, his mental health challenges, forging your own path career-wise, social media trolls, and so many more areas. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find, and this is a free library for you, the audience. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Justin Kingsley. Enjoy. Well, Justin, I want to start by saying thank you so much for coming on the Behind the Show podcast today.
1: James, uh, it's one of the great honors of my life to be on your podcast. I, I'm, uh, I'm a very sentimental person and first responders are very close to my heart, so thank you, man.
0: Beautiful. Well, thank you. Well, first question, even before we, we do my normal opening ones, I heard you mention in an interview that I just listened to about getting on the Jimmy Fallon show. Did you manage to do that yet or is that still on the, on the horizon?
1: I didn't even have to say, I think it's changed. I, I used to think that's what I wanted to do, but I have a feeling that the kind of things I'm making and books I'm writing and films and all that are maybe for a different audience than Jimmy's, but uh, who knows, maybe he'll recognize the humor in what I do and, and have me on, but it's more just a, uh, it's a North Star goal. You know, I, I will be talking about this, but I always, you know, that, that expression shoot for the moon or aim for the moon and, Settle for the stars, or whatever that thing is, that works for me. So, that was more just of a okay, how do I get on that show so that I have a long term ambition, you know? But yeah. the answer is no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's funny as well because my wife and I were just having a discussion about that phrase, and I was telling her, I'm like, doesn't that seem fucking backward to you? Like, the moon is a lot closer than the stars, so wouldn't uh-huh. you shoot for the stars and maybe you hit the moon?
1: <laughs> it if, uh, that's your journalism background. I guess that's uh, that's coming through but uh, uh, No, it's when I talk about North Star that it resonates with kids with older people It's just or or I give the visual of climbing a mountain You know anyone who's climbed a mountain knows you don't you just don't go straight up in one shot It's it's a it's a series of zigs and zags and, and you know, and it, it like Everest takes weeks of climbing and months of preparation so so try to have a vision that's long term, but short term actions and and where's the balance? You know, where's the balance? That's the big question.
0: Absolutely. Well, the thing with the Jimmy Fallon thing as well, and I was thinking this when I was listening to it is, you know, there's there's a a kind of pull when you're in any circle to be on. Like, for example, Joe Rogan in the podcasting world is kind of the pinnacle to a lot of people. Um, but you've got one of two philosophies you can either shoot to be on someone else's thing, or you can create your own platform to where you make your own version of that.
1: Well, I'll tell you, bro, I mean, I, I started my career in journalism, and I was a reporter for Canadian Press, which is the equivalent of Associated Press. And I mean, I realized one day I'm spending my life writing about what other people are doing. And that's fine. For some people that's wonderful and that's a great career and there are great greater journalists than me, but I realized that that wasn't for me. I didn't want to spend my life following or 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 talking about other people's actions. I realized it was innate too. I didn't get it yet. I'm starting to understand it now. I'm 49, you know, I'm a father, but but I always knew that there was more than than what other people are doing, but that I had to do something. I felt that inside me and and been trying to follow it since then. Yeah.
0: See, and that's interesting as well. What what do you think about that with not even so much a journalism side but the receiving, you know, the the reader, the listener about living vicariously through people that we idolize versus taking some of that energy and creating a path where we too can be someone that we're proud of.
1: Well, you know it's I mean, look at guys like you and me and, and, and we're, and people like us, women and men who are driven, you know, like us, it's never enough, you know, like, like I'm never going to stop working. You're never going to stop working. But I, what I've also understood is, is there's some people for whom the life, the Monday to Friday structured life is very comfortable and it works and their priorities are different. So what I've been learning, I I work with a lot of kids, you know, I work in the creative field, I I TV, film, create, you know, advertising, and you have a lot of young people. And I, I I guess I'm trying to talk to them the way I I, would have helped me to talk to myself back then is, is to understand yourself, right? We were talking about branding earlier, and we're going to talk about it again. But who are you really, you know, hold up the mirror in front of your face and and can you be honest with what you really want? Because, man, like I'm from Ottawa, the Canada's capital. Uh, my, everyone in my family worked in the government. My father was one of the highest ranking officials in the Canadian government in charge of our democracy. And for years I thought, oh, I want to run for office. Maybe I'll be a minister or I want to be a CEO of a company and have all this power. And I realized at one point that it was just all a load of of bullshit that I was listening to and I was, that society was creating for me, you know, and, and everyone's saying, Oh, you got to do this. But I realized, and it took years that, no, it's not what I want to do. One, I, I don't need power over anybody in terms of like a CEO or VPC. I, I, I just don't care. I, I, we live well, we eat, we have a roof. So I'm not a money guy, you know, I don't need, so it, Again, yeah. North Star, who are you really, and what do you? What puts a smile on your face? Like, I struggled in my thirties, man. I was in a huge advertising agency. I was a partner, one of the top in the world. But you want to know the truth? Every day started with the last three months. I was there. The day started in the parking lot, alone, crying for twenty minutes. You know. So that, and I had the power. I was a partner in one of the world's five best shops, but clearly it didn't mean shit to me you know i knew i had to just make a change
0: you know absolutely it's interesting you say that because in the first responder profession obviously the fire is what i've been immersed in you have people that have that when they work for the wrong fire department one that's either not managed well and there's a very kind of toxic environment within it one that maybe um you know, is, not supported well, whatever it is. And, and it's heartbreaking. And I see that create a lot of, you know, stress, a lot of, you know, mental health issues really, because the core of what they want to do is help. The core of what they want to do is be the person that shows up when someone's having their worst day. But some of these men and women work in environments, just like you said, where, their purpose is completely true, but maybe they're just sitting in the wrong organization for them to truly, you know, foster the path that they want to follow.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, again, one, society is telling us, here's what you should be doing. Here's who you should be. And we're not listening to that because, you know, you're making me, as, as I listen to you, I, I've written three nonfiction books. And the third one I wrote in French, and it's about giving. And I I decided to write a book about giving because no one's talking about giving. No one's writing about giving. I, I hadn't found anything written in long form about giving in the last five decades. You understand? So that's that right away. When I see that stuff, I go, oh, great. That's that's for me. Nobody nobody's here. And in there, I I have a chapter about first responders. And I was trying because I was trying to understand what motivates a first responder. I've got some of my best friends, my brothers and sisters in the world are, are Canadian military. And so I wrote a chapter about a friend I know who I know has been over overseas and seen action dozens of times. And I went to him and I said, I need to understand something. And he said, what just, and I said, you, you're ready to put everything on the line. You're ready to sacrifice your life for a person you didn't know and for an idea you didn't come up with. And I need to understand where that comes from, you know? And, and he, and it was funny cause he said, it took me, uh, he goes, he, he, him, it didn't take him a long time at all. It's the opposite of me. He knew when he was 16 years old that he wanted to be in the military, but I said, why, how do you know? And it's what he said to me that blew my mind is he said, you just know that if if someone's going to do it, it needs to be done right, and that's me. And you just feel it. And I tried to internalize that because I've done a lot of crisis management. I've been a press secretary for the Prime Minister of Canada. Uh, I've taught crisis management in in healthcare at universities around the world. I've lectured about it, and and if I have one emotion in common with, I think, with first responders is when the shit hits the fan, I calm down. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not a fireman. I don't have a fire per, a firefighter. I, I don't have that. That I don't think. I don't know if I have that courage. I, I, I hope I do, but I don't know. But I do know that, like, there's shit that gets to me that doesn't bother anyone else. I'm oversensitive. I'm told all the time you're too emotional, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time. When the shit hits the fan, I'm the guy people call, you know, and, and from, a, from a communications perspective. And I've known that about myself since I was a teenager because of an accident that happened in my hood. And since I was a Boy Scout, I was in the Boy Scouts. But there's something about people who work in your field, firefighters, uh, police officers, healthcare workers, that I just, I just imagine there's something inside of most of you that's different. That it's a it's a call, you know, and, and and people answer it at a different time in their lives. I, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but it, it's it's an emotional, visceral thing, right?
0: Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And the phrase I think I hear a lot of, uh, you know, my men and women in the professions from all over the world say the same thing: say we don't wish harm upon anyone. However, if it's going to happen, I want to be there to help.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. And where does that come from? Like, how do you understand that? How do you explain that to your, your, your husband, your wife, your kid, your parents, right? Like it's in a way it's inexplicable, but anyway, I just, I just have a a huge amount of respect for it. And I think that's where real heroes are made. You know, that those are the real people in our society who are heroes and we've never, it's never been truer than right now.
0: Yeah. Well, well, like you said, it's an interesting thing that comes from, obviously, childhood. And I'm not sure, you know, when I look back, I think I think a lot of us probably were just raised to either be the protector. I've seen a, a very strong through line of a lot of people who had pretty horrific childhoods that ended up in these professions because they wanted, subconsciously, they wanted the cycle to stop. They wanted that, you know, they were hurt and they didn't want anyone else to get hurt. And there's also an element of actually filling the void with this profession too, you know, being so busy, so you know, full of adrenaline that you're not having to face what's going on inside. With I would love to start at the very beginning and get your through line because I know, you know, there were elements of, of loneliness and, and um, you know, isolation in your early life. And, you know, they, they had powerful through lines as, as we progress chronologically through to where you are today. So tell me about your family dynamic, where you were born, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Oh, for sure.
1: Uh, I'm an only child which really bothers both of my sisters and uh, <laughs> I love that line I love it, it, makes it I've said that in, at press conferences in front of my family but I love teasing my sisters I'm we're three I'm the middle child I have an older sister Marie France we're francophone from Ottawa so I'm a Franco-Ontarian which is a linguistic minority in, in, uh, in the province where I was born And uh, yeah, my older sister, Marie France, is a PhD in uh, uh, political science and economics. And she's, I mean, she had a PhD, she was 29 years old. So that was my older sister, an example at home. So I was happy with a a B plus and she'd come home and cry over 98% on a math test. So that was was the older sister. And then I have a younger sister named Michelle, who is also uh, smarter than me, more talented than me. And like, I mean, I just grew up uh, around unbelievably wonderful, strong women. My mother, Suzanne, my grandmothers on both sides, and so a very close French-Canadian family. My father is Jean-Pierre, and he was chief electoral officer of Canada for 20 years. My mother, too, worked in government and in uh, human resources. So we would talk about, you know, Myers-Briggs when it was first coming out, the the all all that stuff, uh, psychology and HR. So I grew up in a very rich, very safe, uh, protected environment in, in Ottawa. But I had a parallel life, I guess, in my childhood that nobody in my family knew about because I didn't talk about it. But I was also a big reject. I was uh, just not a popular kid. And it's It had a huge impact on my life, and it still impacts me today. I'm 49 years old, but when I look at myself honestly, I I sometimes go, well, yeah, you're still out there trying to show people that you're worth something. And and so that was my childhood, at home, wonderful, safe, never needed anything, wanted to play hockey, I got skates, wanted to be in the Boy Scouts, I was in, you know? But life at school and in the playground was different. It was isolation. And and it was a lot of questioning on what kind of person am I? Why doesn't anybody like me? Why am I a reject? Why did he beat me up? Why can I not play with them? All, all those things. And, uh, you know, then you look at that. That's where I became a, a rebel. I was a quiet kid who who was shy and... And I paid for it. So I thought, okay, be an arrogant little shit. Well, that was high school and I paid for that because I still don't have any friends. You know what I mean? But then I also look at that as one of the greatest advantages of my life. Because one, I, I don't ever want to make someone feel that way. You don't control who you are or like who, how you're born, right? And, and when you're a kid, you're just an innocent kid. So I, 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 don't, I didn't ever want, want to treat anyone else that way. But it also motivated me. It motivated me to work harder than all my contemporaries and all the competition because I have this innate need to prove that I'm not worthless, I guess, when I when I try to rationalize it, I, you know, that I'm a beautiful, creative person. But again, it's you try to keep things in balance. You know, I'm I'm really good friends with George St. Pierre, the mixed martial artist, world champion. I I did his brand. I wrote his book. I mean, we trained together and and he also had a, has a history of, of bullying in his youth. In fact, he has a bullying foundation. But one thing we also both talk about is maybe we wouldn't be where we are today if it wasn't for these, these ordeals or these things that we went through and. And in my case, I also realized, you know what, buddy, accept your part in, in this. You are different. Right? Like stop seeing your differences as a disadvantage. And I've built a career out of my, my creativity. But you play alone for six, seven years when you're a kid with your Lego and your, your puzzles and you, you you know, the forest. Me, it was the Lego and the forest, Lego in the city and the forest in the country. I go in the forest and I'd spend days alone pretending i was daniel boone uh, uh, french in french it's coureur des bois uh, i don't know if you guys had that show daniel anyway it's uh, a kind of man that lived in the bush back in the day so you know that's where my creativity was fostered my sensitivity grew and so again it's it's tough to process all that sometimes but uh w- hence trying to focus energy in the right place right it's all about my my thing now is just trying to focus energy in the right place. But yeah, so that was it. That's I grew up like that that's the childhood. Ottawa and then I had an awakening. I had an awakening when uh I was 19 years old and uh my first love broke my heart into 8,453,672 pieces and <laughs> and I, became, I, I that's why I learned to express my emotions, you know?
0: So it it's so interesting listening to people's early life because I mean time and time again you see you see that that genesis of of some of the traits that are going to follow them the rest of their life um and you know one of the things I always ask people that are bullied and obviously if we're able to get George on one one day I'll ask him as well um is what what was it you know I had Justin Ren on, who's another MMA uh, UFC fighter um you know and it was they said because he at the time was fat but what is it that makes kids single out, makes them ignore them, makes them bully them. Um, And then how do we fix that in the parenting, in raising our children? Because absolutely some of the people that have been on here, that forged a resilience which then followed them through. However, the other side of the coin is there are people that aren't with us anymore because that actually destroyed them and ended up taking their own lives. So the answer to me is a more proactive approach is how do we make everyone kinder?
1: You know, it's, it's uh what a huge question. I think about this so much. Uh, my wife and I have a six and a half year old son who's sensitive like me and I see it, you know, and it's, it's scary. And, and I see what's happening in society. In fact, I was recently, I'm being targeted by certain people for work. I did, uh, of a hate campaign. And so a lot of those emotions are coming back. I just, I, I know how to deal with them better now, but I, my whole thing and the solution to all all or the beginning of a solution to all the world's ills so that means environment racial relations every every element of our lives is education education let's give better equipment to our young people to learn and I, and get to them at a younger age with a proper level of education, the ability to read and write and reason and make decisions for ourselves. Because the ills that I see, to me, are connected, most of them, to ignorance. Some of them is, is hatred. Yes, and that we just have to fight against. And that's I call that my Star Wars example, right? The force, the good, the bad. But mo- most of our ills are just come from people who are, who are, fi- who, who are scared right? Like a bully, a bully, I think is, it's a way that she or he is expressing fear. And, and they're so insecure that they're, they're taking it out on other people. And and I'm an example, you know, I, when I worked in agencies, a lot of people thought uh, I was, uh, and they still do some of them, that I'm arrogant, that I'm defensive, that I'm pretentious. And I have been those things. That's the truth. I, I have behaved that way, but it, It wasn't to impose myself on someone it was to protect myself but i was doing it wrong and i realized one day shit justin it's not fun to work with you who cares if you're going to the olympics and doing this campaign or that campaign people don't want to talk to you after that you worked with or whatever so you know what i mean that's internalization but prejudice right prejudice of all forms whether it's it's a religion or, or a color or, or a language anything is is born out of ignorance so for me it's education right educate people on our ecosystem how we're all in this together like this this pandemic if the, you know we're, we're talking about this pandemic and I, when I speak with some of my friends we're already in discussions about well what's gonna happen to our ecosystem our environment When this pandemic ends because you have a feeling that the vault you know they're just gonna go into fourth gear fifth gear put the pedal to the metal and production's just gonna blow up again more than it ever did well that's probably a bigger long-term concern than this disease itself you know the number of lives that we're losing because of pollution because of this and and even in your ranks even in the ranks of first responders if you look at all the great actions and people in in your world, and yet there's a few who are spoiling your, if you want to talk about brand, the, the brand of first responders. Think of the the police, right? Think of Breonna Taylor and Justice and, and all these examples that we hear about or what occurred on the Capitol. The difference in the Black Lives Matter protest preparation as opposed to um, the other individuals who stormed the Capitol recently, all these things have a huge impact on, on perception. And, and we live in an era now where it's funny. I was talking about this with, with some people I know who are the the generation before me who made big decisions that were criticized in the media and editorialized. But they said one thing to me, they said, we're lucky. Just we did these things, when there was no internet and no social media, and he said, these people that we're seeing now were, were always there, but now they have a the the media gives them a voice. So you can have 10 followers on Twitter if you go out there and you tweet and share and hate the right way, it gets picked up. And so there's a whole vacuum occurring there, too. So the, the, the real answer for me to your question is education and just in Canada, uh, I, I've been trying to look at when the last reforms were on the educational model, and it's, it's decades old. And then you look at examples like what's happening in Finland, in Sweden, in, in Denmark, in Norway, and Japan, uh, you know, where, where they've just opened themselves up to a different form of education. And, and true, true equality, because it's just, it's, it's just, it hasn't been there. And so, yeah, I mean, it's a huge question, but, but for for me, it's, it's, and again, I was lucky, right? Like I, not only did I have school, not only did I have a family that, that encouraged reading and, and, and learning, but I was, I got to be in the Boy Scouts. You know, I got to learn what a daily good deed uh looks like, feels like, and how people react to that form of leadership and, and, and good deeds. So, Everything I do is to try to all the work that I do, I, I try to and it happens, but I try to not pass a judgment and just compel people to think and, and and to develop their own opinions and their own forms of critical thinking. but it doesn't always work. And I see a lot of people who don't want us to provide greater education to our young ones and who wanna you know, stick to the status quo. Well, I say fuck the status quo, right? Like it, it's not working. So that's where I'd like to see more efforts and that's what I'm working on. In fact, I'm trying to create right now uh, an idea for a foundation that, that doesn't revolve around money, that has no money exchange, but it's a foundation around good deeds, right? I'm calling it the uh, unofficials and it's just people who, who agree to okay, I'm going to make a change in my life. I'm I eat meat seven days a week, so I'm going to cut down to five days a week and see if I can do do that and be part of a collective effort to eat more locally ground uh, grown uh, harvested non-hormonal crap beef and and that. Or or you're someone who has a big gas-guzzling truck and you're out of shape. Well, then fuck. How, how- about you leave that truck home two or three days a week and walk or this so again actions and and my second book was called weology and and i'll I'll stop my sorry for this long-winded answer but but it was called weology and the subtitle is how everybody wins when we comes before me And that idea for the title comes from a Muhammad Ali poem, which is the shortest uh, recorded poem in the history of the English language. I'll talk about that in a second. But the idea to write this book actually started when I worked for the prime minister of Canada, because I was his press secretary. And I'll never forget. I was at home having coffee at five in the morning, reading my news clippings. And I saw a piece where I saw that Warren Buffett was donating billions of dollars to charity. And I thought, wow what an amazing gesture but then i thought wait a second it's a great amazing gesture but it doesn't change anything in my life and it doesn't change anything in the lives of people i know and i don't recognize myself in the gesture because he's giving away millions of dollars i don't even know what it feels like to to have one million dollars let alone be able to give away thousands of dollars or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. He's giving away billions. So I thought, wait a second, we got to think about the individuals and what everybody can bring. So I started playing with this concept, uh, uh, me, we, right. And, and we, me. And at first it was, we, meology, a new relationship between individuals and the collective, which is based on a, on an Aristotle philosophy, the golden means rule, which is you're free to do anything you want to do. As long as your freedom doesn't fuck with his freedom or her freedom over there, that's real freedom, right? Like freedom isn't just, I can do whatever the hell I want is we can all do and act freely as long as we don't mess with somebody else's freedom. And so I worked on this concept and then I met this banker who was, who was implementing that kind of thinking in his, in his uh, bank. So we, we wrote this book together, but it all started with a Muhammad Ali poem, because that guy, the two greatest American poets that I've ever read are, are Abraham Lincoln and Muhammad Ali, and Ali and and Dr. King. But Ali was at a commencement ceremony in an Ivy League school. There's a video on YouTube somewhere of George Plimpton, or who I can't, yeah, I think, no, George, Papar, I can't remember what his name was. Anyway, uh, you, you'll recognize him when you see him. Uh, and and he's telling the story that Ali's in front of this all-white audience in an Ivy League school, and it's there's racial tensions, and he's Muhammad Ali now, and he's been through you know all the history that we know and the conflict. And the, the students start chanting poem, 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 because Ali was the one who said, Your hands can't hit what your eyes can't see. I float like a butterfly, I sting like a bee, like the Louisville lip, right? That was his nickname. And live. Live in front of those kids, a fighter wrote the greatest poem, the shortest poem in the history of the English language. He looked at them and he goes, me, we. And it captures the state of a a generation of people, of shifting uh, priorities in our society, race relations. So, you know, like, yeah, just education bringing people together but even recently when i did this this vision this brand for cf montreal the, the the major league soccer team here you know it's it's a movement and people said well what's your inspiration and i said well i'm sorry for sounding cheesy but there's a man named king who gave a speech years ago in which he said i have a dream let freedom ring will be free at last where he said to me that he wants his grandchildren to play with my kids well i want those same things. And and when you grow up as a reject, bullied loser, you don't want anyone to give you anything for free. Okay. You want to earn it, but you want to be able to keep what you earn. And 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 own that. And when I say own that, it means talk about it. It means grow from it. So so yeah, we weology and, and trying to think a little bit more collectively because the great irony. I mean, and I said I was going to finish with that, but I'm going to say one more thing. I, I made a film, a documentary last year called Chekapesh. And Chekapesh is an indigenous word here that, that exists in many languages in Canada, indigenous languages, that it's, it's the word for trickster. And it's the story of the Montreal Symphony Orchestra. And they go up north into reserves, half a dozen reserves. Some are Inuit, some are Innu, and some are from the Cree communities here that have never seen an orchestra before. And so it was an effort by our maestro at the time, Kent Nagano, who's one of the world's great conductors and and musical leaders. And he said, well, I want to go where there's never been an orchestra. And it's part of reconciliation and, and, and reaching out to people and making beautiful art and music together. Right. So he put together an opera that involves indigenous performers, the symphony orchestra. And we decided to make a film about it. But there's there's a great learning from that. For years, our people in North America have had a devastating effect on our indigenous populations. In Quebec, it's systemic racism in our system, and, and we, we, it's, a, it's, a, it's a national shame for us. And we created a thing called residential schools where we went into indigenous communities and, and pulled out their children when they were five years old, six years old. And, and the message to indigenous parents were, we'll do a better job preparing your kids for the future. And anyway, the, the story is awful. But the great irony is, is we've been telling these people that we can teach them how to live better for, for decades. And it's it's the survival of our entire species depends on us being able to learn the lessons that come from indigenous peoples, from from the proper and intelligent management of what I keep referring to as an ecosystem. And the easiest way to explain this example is hunters. When you hunt uh, with with an indigenous hunter, one, the moment you catch an animal, you thank the seven previous generations for making sure that they, they hunted responsibly so that you could have this animal to feed your family today which means that you only take what you need. And if you see another animal you could take down, but you don't need it, you leave it for the next five, six, or seven generations. And there's another thing is there's depots. There's areas in in most of our indigenous lands where it's a community depot. So the meat you don't need, you share. So locally grown and harvested animals, no hormones, no crap, uh, and living in balance in your ecosystem. And again, all of that for me comes back to education, because when, you're, when, you, when you feel educated, when you feel you have knowledge and that you can use your knowledge, well, then your insecurity goes down. And when your insecurity goes down and your personal fear go down, you become easier to work with, or in some cases, less of a jerk right and and you start in creativity in my field when i became less insecure is actually when i became a better creative and it wasn't because i was getting better ideas it's because i was finally listening intelligently to other people's better ideas than mine because it happens i think i'm a world champion i've proven that in my ideas but you don't win every fight or every game that you're in even George St. Pierre lost some fights. You understand? So, so again, it's about a long-term vision and and, and letting go of the things that, that foster more fear, more insecurity, and being more – and when you do that, you're more open to the beauty that comes from other
0: people. Beautiful. Well, I love that. Well, it's funny. Going back to education, when you mentioned some of the other countries, I had – one of the kind of key figures that travels and talks about Finnish education, Pasi Salberg, on the show for that very reason. Because for me, you know, I look at areas where we can improve. And I think, you know, the one of the issues we have, and I know you, the humility is something you talk about, but I think we, we lack that a lot, especially... I think I'm not just going to pick on the US. I think a lot of countries have that kind of sense of pride to the point where it gets in the way of progress. So... You know, I talk about, you know, Portugal and Switzerland's drug policies, Norway's prison policies, Finland's education policies, Britain's NHS when it's funded properly. These are all systems that other countries are doing better than us that we could bring in and foster our own version. But here I brought my two year degree from, from England and it took me another, let me see, four and a half years to make that two year degree into a four year degree in our system here and i had to do all these high level math classes and all these things to get a degree in exercise physiology you know so i see that like you said that there's i don't know it's not deliberate but there's definitely become um a shift from a goodwilled goal to educate children to a money-making machine especially in the higher education circle where now all these, you know, these students graduate with literally hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt, which is absolutely insane. So, I couldn't agree with you more. Going back to a more holistic education model, where we take a child and we teach them math and English and, you know, these skills, but we teach them geography. We teach them about kindness and compassion and the impact of, you know, pollution on the world and all these other elements too, so that as These men and women have our children for, you know, six plus hours a day. They also take a part in fostering kind and compassionate kids, not just kids that have got a 4.0 GPA. Yeah.
1: Well, it's funny you say that because when I was talking with the symphony orchestra, some of the musicians... And I wanted to understand how are the up and comers, right? I'm just curious. I mean, you get, I'm a nerd, I'm curious. So you start, and I have access to some of the greatest musicians in the world. And they're all, they're saying a very similar thing to what you're saying. A lot of these kids coming out of of music programs are perfect. And in fact, the guy said to me, the musician, he said, they're too perfect, Justin. And that's the problem. There's no emotion anymore in what they're playing because it's just been rehearsed to, to perfection. And you know, just as well as I do that, that the beauty is often in the flaws, right? And, and you, whether it's, you think of Stravinsky or Miles Davis and, and, and the Charlie Parker's, all those people, the, 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 the or what Leonard Cohen said, right? The uh, cracks are how the light gets in. And, and so we're seeing it a lot, but. When I look at Japan and I see that the, their schools don't have cleaning staff because the kids clean the school, I go, yes, that's what I want Leo to learn. Like He's turning seven in April, and I've been preparing him because I say seven is the age. The Spartans, seven was the age in the, in when the, the Spartans, the last no, uh, army of nobles, I think, in the history of the world, when you were seven, you had that ritual where you're sent into the forest and you have to survive, and then that's how you know you're a Spartan. Well, we're not going to do that to Leo and we're not Spartans, but I've been joking with him and I've been trying to tell him about, you know, the gates of fire and the battle of Thermopylae and the Spartan army. But I said, seven years old, son, is when you start learning about responsibility and cleaning up after yourself and these things. But what I hear and what you're saying is that education is more than just what you find in the book that you can learn and process by heart. And and there's, you know, there's a PhD you can get from a university, but there's also a PhD you can get from the street, from the street, from learning. Like, you know, I off, I always tease my sister, Marie France, because she's just so goddamn smart. But I say, I say, yeah, you have a PhD, you have this. But I still think if you don't cross the street on a green light, you're going to get hit by a car because you don't know how to jaywalk. Right. That's that street star, uh, street smarts, right. Street smarts, PhD. But but, yeah, I, I love those examples. And, and you just don't understand that. Well, then you see, why isn't it happening? And it's, it's politics. It's that power game. And it's just it becomes discouraging. So much so that people like me have said, well, fuck it. Screw politics. I'm going to ignore them. We're going to do our own thing. You know, our own thing.
0: Absolutely. Well, I couldn't agree more with that last statement. But another thing I think that, that is a through line through the conversations I've had, a lot of the books that I really love is I realize that, again there's a, there's a sense of arrogance with post-war thinking, post World War II thinking. This we're the best in the world. If you industrialize everything, it makes it better. And you look at the obesity epidemic. You look at you know the the prohibition of drugs and the horrendous violence and addiction and death and you know the, that's brought so many solutions to so many issues. We have to listen to our forefathers, you know, and foremothers. And what they did a hundred years ago, you know, a thousand years ago as you as you're referencing, you know, with ancient history, even more than that. And uh Sebastian Junger wrote a book, Tribe, which is one of my favorite books ever written. And he talks about the Iroquois, for example, and how, you know, they have a leader for war and a leader for peace. And you hear these stories of American settlers where, you know, a lot of a lot of, you know, Europeans were in quote unquote civilized towns or cities in the US and they got taken by a native american tribe and when they were liberated they refused to go back to the cities because they realized that the simplicity of the life with some of these tribes that they found themselves amongst was actually more you know more of a natural human experience than the industrialized cities that they were originally from
1: and and how did that happen it happened because they didn't have a choice to face like they were taken and so they probably think they were done for, right? But the reality is they just didn't have a choice. And then they saw the way of life, and they went, "Holy shit! Oh, it's not—it's not what I thought it was." But they were fo- a, a bit force-fed, and then to the point where they went, "Oh, this doesn't taste so bad, right?" And and but the, you got to try it. You have to experience it. You have to live it and survive it, and then realize, "Oh, this person's not against me. This person is for me." or with me even better okay cool right like it's again it's like a fight it's like a fight and george and all the, every single fighter i know tells me the same thing the only shots that really hurt are the ones you don't see coming well that's a metaphor that's a metaphor when i when i was talking to you about my mental health struggles uh, uh, in the agency at sidley when i was at the end it was what was getting me it wasn't the work it wasn't. It, it was one thing, politics, office politics, and people plotting and playing games, and fear and insecurity, all that stuff. And and we just have to break it. We just have to break it. And and, and it's one person at a time. It, it, it's harder. It takes longer. It takes more effort. But in the end, you convert real conversion, real people who who believe in the system. And there was a story, I, I'll, the best example I've ever seen. I I wish I could remember his name. Was a fella. Was an African American fella, and and what he's been doing for years is converting members of the Ku Klux Klan. And they ask him, "How do you do it?" And he he's converted about forty or fifty of these people, and his house is filled with this crazy paraphernalia from these hate groups. And he goes. I just approach them and I tell them I want to be their friend and I don't let him, I don't take no for an answer and I become friends with him and he's converted a bunch of people and, and that, that merits media coverage, all that great, but it's, it's so simple, but it works. It works because at some point the person breaks down and realizes, yeah, this guy, this guy's all right. And, and you know, you realize at some point when we're born, we're all the same color. We're purple. And when we die, we're all the same color. We're gray. We're ash. You understand? So, like in between there, why create unnecessary evils when there's so many real ones that we're going to have to face anyway, you know?
0: Absolutely. Well, you, you mentioned the Aristotle quote, and I think that's one of the issues is, you know, a, a lot of us now were raised on – you know, be the best, crush the, crush the competition, you know, be the winner, all this kind of thing. And I think that detracts from that tribal mentality, that sense of community. So as you mentioned, having that freedom of expression, you know, fostering your own path, being an individual, but understanding that your actions need to collectively raise the masses. And if they're detracting from the masses, then you're a cancer, not, you know, not a, a, you know, a nutrient to that community.
1: Yeah, that's the, thats what I mean when I say the Star Wars example. You don't have to be a Jedi, okay? You don't have to be Obi Wan Kenobi or Luke Skywalker or Yoda. Just be with the good—the good side. Be be with Leia. Be with with that crew.
0: Be an Ewok.
1: <laughs> well, yes. Yes. If that's who you are, if that's what you want to be, who doesn't love the ewoks, man? Exactly. (laughs) We all love the ewoks. Now, do we remember one of them in particular? Well, maybe, but it doesn't matter. That that's their way of being part of something good. And if you're not harming someone else, then you're part of something good. But we have to get there. And it's education. You know, when I read that eighty percent of parents don't read to their children when they go to sleep at night in bed, like I, I think I cried the first time I heard that, like, it's, that's the best part of my day. Like every night I, you can't get, I, I can miss my favorite football team playing a game. I can record it. I can, but that I'm not going to miss. So it's, it's a bit heartbreaking. And, and, and our society is become even, even faster at judging people and and the haters are much more organized at organizing hate online and and there's just a huge amount of hypocrisy you know one of my close friends uh uh went to prison a few years ago i didn't know him that well before prison i he was in the hood and i and he went to prison and, and he came out three and a half years four years later and he was like hey i'm like just i don't understand why a guy like you Is still, you know, is going to be friends with me and seen with me and blah blah blah. And I said, bro, man, you have immigrant parents who came here. I would say our educational system failed you because you're obviously a very intelligent, capable man. And our society sent you for to prison for doing the same thing our government's doing. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, well, you went to prison for selling drugs and having weapons, right? And he goes, yes. And I said, well. Our government has legalized cannabis and has a monopoly on cannabis. It has a monopoly on liquor sales and it sells weapons to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia in the amount of $15 billion a year. And we know that Saudi Arabia is engaged in all kinds of things. And if you want to know, just Google Saudi Arabia and genocide and you'll see. And so our government is saying you you can't you can't sell any of the same drugs or any of the same weapons in your small market, but we can do it in our way in our market. And I just think that's hypocrisy. And, and I think it's failing our people. And I think it's settling for cash when we could be part of the greater good. And and that's more it's a Canadian thing for me. But it's something that really bugs me because we have this global image as good guys, good people. Uh, I got to stop saying good guys, good people and, and, and who have, you know, we've never started. Uh, a, a war but we've we've participated We've but there there's also a lot of crap there's also a lot of crap going and if and and if you don't admit the issues, then how can you expect to fix them right like i have a, a super good friend who's a, an indigenous musician and and there's a big debate in Quebec society now about about institutional prejudice you know is it our, and it clearly is, but there's denial by a lot of powerful figures about this thing. Well, denying that there's systemic prejudice in our system is like going to the doctor and not telling the doctor where it hurts, where the injury is. How can you expect your doctor to provide a cure or a solution if she or he doesn't know what the problem is, right? So I think it's, well, it's podcasts like this. It's discussions like ours. It's people like you and me who are saying, we don't want to wrong you. We don't want to attack you. We don't, but we have to admit the problem so that we, we fix the problem and it's not easy. And there's no easy solution. There isn't any, it, it comes down to human nature and collective desire to move forward, right? For our kids, for the ones who are going to come after us. But There's a lot of people who don't give a crap about the people who are coming after us, and some of them have children, and I just don't understand them. Maybe you do. and You can explain it to me because that's the one part I don't get.
0: No, I I agree completely. The perfect analogy is it's the parents that live in the street. I'm sure we've all got them. That one household that speeds through your neighborhood that also has kids. Like How the fuck can you not understand that a child might get hit when you literally have children in your household? So yeah, I mean I understand completely, but I don't understand the why. I just I understand, you know, I see it. But one I wanna ask you about this. So one of the first things that you found yourself in was journalism. Now, to me, again, an observation I've made, especially here in the US, I gotta say I'm very proud of the the BBC. I think it's a very middle of the road, common sense reporting outlet usually. Um but over here you've got your Foxes, you've got your CNNs, you've got all this stuff, and there seems to be uh a very effective um Kind of uh, mythology, oh, sorry, methodology, excuse me, of if you ignite the extremes, nothing will actually be addressed. So, Black Lives Matter, all cops are murderers and racists, okay? The other way, all black people are criminals and drug dealers. Well, those two argue they get all this airtime with these fucking news networks that put, you know, split the screen four ways, that four assholes talk for hours and hours and hours. Meantime, nothing's actually addressed because you've got two warring factions. So that, that is my that's James Gearing's perspective of why nothing seems to get done at the moment. With you coming up through journalism, what what are you what do you view as media, whether it's in Canada or the US and, and what can we do better? How can we fix this polarizing reporting that we seem to see so much of at the moment?
1: Well, you'd be a little bit more Adolf Ox and a little bit less Joseph Pulitzer, right? I mean is the creator of the sensational uh, rag the yellow press the the all that movement in journalism right you or and William Randolph Hearst you provide the pictures I'll provide the war that's that's something he said to his photographer in 1898 or 97 I can't remember exactly when there was the Spanish uh, conflict boats in the harbor anyway uh, um, and then you had Adolph Ox at the New York Times the founder of the New York Times who said all the news that's fit to print, and if you look at the results today, I, I saw that the the New York Times uh, online subscriptions have grown by two million uh, new followers in the last uh, twelve or eighteen months, which brings them to about seven and a half million or eight million subscribers who pay for their product. So that, for me, is is extremely encouraging. But the New York Times says. Minus a couple of isolated instances that we know about in the last few years of whatever an accusation of plagiarism or a conflict in the newsroom, they are with the BBC uh, the global ex- examples of reliable s- sources of factual information. You know, and you, if you listen to the Daily, I mean, Christ Almighty, how do you how do they fill so much information in in twenty five minutes or whatever it takes is is unreal. But their number one priority for these media, and they're not alone, there are others, but their number one priority is the quality of their product. But that's not true for all of those media outlets that you're talking about, either American or even here in Canada. They're going through a crisis of their own because the media world has exploded and they're freaking out. So they're not looking at the quality of their product or the quality of their information in my opinion, they're looking at the profitability of their product and the profitability of, of the information. And, and when you start with that and, and it's an MBA approach, okay, that's when you start seeing the problems that we're seeing now. And I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, I, I recently did a campaign here with a, a, the major league soccer team. We w- rebuilt their brand. I mean, we're breaking records with this campaign. We're we're we have two point something billion impressions around the world. They're largely positive. We're breaking sales records, but there's a, a small local group of ultra fans who are very vocal and and very aggressive, and they're getting a great deal of media coverage. And we don't see we saw it with the the what happened in the Capitol. A small group of people monopolizing the news. And then you look behind those forces and CNN and the Foxes and the battle between the two and how politics has now become a huge part of media consumption and, and all of that stuff. And it's, it means that there's a we're, we're in the middle of a shift and, and, and we are the ones who are going to determine where it's going to go. And I just, I mean, I breathed a huge sigh of relief when I saw the New York Times uh, uh, new numbers this morning because that's the app I have on my phone. I have the Times, I have BBC, I have the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, which, which is the a sister type of organization to BBC. Uh, um, but you start reading the comments, you start reading at what people are tweeting. The hate. I mean, I shut down my Twitter account last week because you know I'm, I'm receiving threats and twitter says well we don't consider it a threat well okay no problem see you later i'm done forever you know like putting my energy and focus on on positive platforms so so there's a huge shift happening in media and it's not the end it's it's the beginning because the internet is the thing that's changed it and the internet like anything else like the car when ford introduced four wheels and a motor there's good to it but then there's some not so good And we have to work out what's going to come out. Luckily, uh, the new administration in the U.S. uh, hopefully will be part of a a change for the the better. Hopefully. But the real real thing that I hope people understand is that the previous president is not the problem. He's a symptom of the problem. And so that's when you. Talk about media and and the conflict in media and the type of coverage and sensationalism in the media. For me, is is that president who was there before who who's gone now, is is just a symptom. And so the next few years are going to be key to setting up the future of what kind of sources of information can we trust, can we use, and and whom do we empower, right? Because you said it that there's a bad image right now with police. In, in North America, and, and it's not just in the US, it's here in Montreal, there's issues in Quebec with racial profiling. Uh, we're seeing it today with with a man who was misidentified and arrested and then released uh, by the courts for the uh, attempted uh, assault uh, of a police officer. And, and so these issues are now, and and we're counting on our leaders to make the right decisions, but it's It's a bit scary, to be really honest with you, and it's a bit intimidating. And how do you fight that phenomenon? How do you fight anonymous hate? The only thing I know is love. And I try to love everybody, and it's hard. And some of the haters I've deleted because it's just pure hatred. But the one that's not about hatred, but it's an expression of frustration related to love or passion for something, those I'm going to try to work with and try to be open to, but it's, it's intimidating and it's scary for, for the future of our society. And, and I'm just going to try to be part of people who focus on facts because the, a few small people can ruin the image of any group, whether they're first responders, uh, athletes, uh,
0: anybody, right? Yeah, no, I, I agree a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think that's, Like you said, the answer is simply love. I mean, it really is. But, I mean, that love has to begin, you know, when a child is born and has to be, you know, fostered. So, it's the parenting. It's the the community mentors. It is the first responders. I mean, there are people wearing uniforms, fire police, paramedic, corrections that shouldn't be in those positions that are, you know, um, bullies, you know. So, there is an element. And that's the problem is if you blanket, you know, tar and brush Everyone with the same brush, tie everyone with the same brush. You never get to the true underlying thing, which is some of this group are criminals. Some of these group are, you know, overly aggressive police officers. But then there's all these other layers, you know, there's education. As we talked about in, you know, with PASI with the Finnish model, they pour money into some of the poorer areas into those schools because they understand that they may need more support, those children than other areas you know so you know there's there's all these elements where it's a proactive approach but if we're not addressing those layers if we're not talking about police officers being working in understaffed departments that are being forced to stay extra shifts that are sleep deprived that are undertrained that are only given enough ammunition to qualify once a year these are all factors as well to these horrendous you know things that that we see conversely some of these men and women are being executed having lunch in their police cars they didn't do anything wrong. They were murdered by some shitbag, you know? So yeah. that's these are the layers that we need to talk about, but we cannot have those discussions and we cannot address them with elements like education and love until we, as you said, drag these fucking things out into the open and we talk about them and shut just, I mean, like you said, block block the haters. I know that's a funny, you know, like street slang, but it's true. Anyone who's superfluous white noise fucking... Take their microphone away and let the middle yeah. people have the conversation.
1: Just if it's extreme and, 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 and hateful, it just shouldn't be part of the speech. But the thing about love that I think I've learned and, and maybe I'll I, I, loving others is only possible when you love yourself. And, and we talk about the media and look at the examples of success that we're putting out there and how high the bar is right? How high, like how many times does LeBron James have to answer? Hey, do you think you're the greatest ever? Do you think you're the greatest ever? Do you think you, you, how we, we have billionaires who are taking their own lives because they feel they're not examples of success. Uh, uh, and, and so, and I talk about this with, again, with, with George and uh, I hope he comes on your show because it would be an, an illuminating discussion to hear his perspective on a lot of these things, but he. He said something re- to me really important, and he said, you know, Justice, I get a lot of fighters who come to me and they say, oh, yeah, I've been preparing my fight to fight just like you, you did, George, because you're my hero. And he goes, no, no, guys, don't fight like me. Fight like you. Fight to the best. Become the best that y- you can be. You don't have the same toolkit that I have, so you can't be like me. But we've created these ideals in the minds of people and especially in the minds of young people of what's right. And what's wrong. And so they're they're doing all these things to be like other people. And I think that fosters a, a certain sense of uh, when there's failure of self-hate. So that's where that insecurity comes from. You, you're, you're on the defensive. And 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 so you can't love someone else properly if you don't actually love yourself. And that changed me because like some people say hey, you're arrogant and then well, why don't you ask me what I suck at? Cause I don't have any problem telling you what I suck at. If you ask me what I think I'm good at, I'll tell you. And I think I'm a world champ in the things that I'm good at. And I'm not going to shy away from it because it's what I do. And I've got the bona fides, the track record to prove it. But nobody asks me what I suck at. And when they, or the rare occasions that it happens they, oh, well, do you have any weak? Yeah. I got a shitload of weaknesses. In fact, I hire my weaknesses, which I never did before, because I was a control freak, insecure loser. So now I go, no, you're better at that than me. Great. And I'm in love with their skill set because I've realized I can't be good at everything. And that lesson came from George, because we're sitting there one day and we're having breakfast with the boys uh, after a big training session. I go, what are you doing with your afternoon, George? Or no, and we're talking. And George was, hey, I, I I got to tell you guys uh, something about I just discovered. <laughs> I, 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 I do a really good I was going to
0: say, that was a good I, accent. <laughs> guys,
1: I, I, I discovered something. No, anyway, uh, I love to tease uh, old George. But he goes to us and he goes, guys, I discovered something unreal. You have to learn about this. And we go, yeah, what did you discover? And he goes, guacamole. And everybody at the table started laughing at George St. Pierre everybody. And I noticed this cause I'm a watcher. I'm a, I, am I sit and I, especially when I'm at a table with fighters, I, you know, I want to be curious and, and be careful. And they're all, we're all laughing at him and they're all laughing at him and he didn't bat an eye. He just went, well, I didn't know what it was. And it's really good for this kind of fat and that kind of fat. And he, he kept on going like it was water off a duck. You understand? And I went, fuck. Why do I always bullshit people? Oh, did you read this? Oh, yeah, yeah, I read, oh, that album, I heard that album. Oh, I know this, I knew, I, knew, I knew fucking everything. And I, well, you can't know everything. So just know what you know and assume it, and when you don't know, go, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Tell me more. Or like Barbara Walters says, ask why. Best question in the history of the world, why? You know, and it just becomes an attitude. It becomes a mindset. It becomes more fun to be around people. And, and you start understanding yourself better and you fall in love with your own ignorance. And you go, oh wow, I didn't know anything about that. I wanna go. Like I'm in the best shape of my life now because I opened myself up to a new way of training. I used to think it was important how much you benched. So I could bench three plates, four times. I was like, oh, I'm strong. Well, the reality is I was a weak-ass loser. Because you're only as strong as your weakest link. So so you're strong if you're under a bench with a bar on your chest. But what happens if you're in a different position? Or if you're slightly off the bench? Then you have no strength, right? So you start changing the way you train. And that starts getting you going, well, I'm low energy today. Why is that happening? Oh, it's the fuel I'm putting in my th- – oh, and sleep. Oh, and then you start discovering about intermittent fasting and protein this. And, right, you you – once you – accept your ignorance well then you can fill it it's it's like the the society's ills once we you you you're honest about the problem well then you can fix it so so uh, you know and i've done so many different ways and tried so many different things because at one point in my life i said well i i just can't go on being depressed and being unhappy so i i guess i'm gonna have to figure it out and i did thank god for cognitive therapy
0: Beautiful. Well, I was just about to ask you that. So before we get to branding and the first responder um, journey, you know, as you've kind of mentioned uh, in passing, there were, there was a journey where you found yourselves from the outside looking in in very uh, successful positions, but they didn't bring you happiness. So walk me through your career journey and then parallel that with your mental health journey. And then, and then kind of, I'd love to hear where that metamorphosis really began for you personally.
1: So my my I've only ever done one thing which is tell stories. But I started out as a journalist for Canadian Press. I covered international sporting events, then I covered politics on Parliament Hill. Then I realized I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life and write what uh, what about other people were doing. So I went onto the other side. I went into PR and media relations. And so there I I started doing crisis management, PR strategy, media relations strategy, all that, all that kind of stuff. And then that led to an opportunity in brain research, believe it or not. I worked at the, the Canadian equivalent of the NIH, National Institutes of Health, in the neurosciences division, because I could do knowledge translation, and I could take complicated shit and simplify it so that people would understand, which was my first expo- exposure to working with mental health and mental illness professionals, because neurosciences is the brain, is mental health, and it's addiction, right, and spine health and all that stuff. And then I became a spokesperson for the government managing crises. I was the head of media relations for the government of Canada, which led to the prime minister's office. And because I studied macroeconomics in university, I had a a pretty good understanding of macroeconomic concepts. So I was a spokesperson and I worked specifically on, on big economic files with him. And then I got so disgusted with politics that I dumped it all there and I went into creative and I worked at Cassette Communications and Sidley and, and, and worked in marketing and advertising and learned that. So what I've done throughout my career is take, take the skill set that I have and try to see how it applies to other fields and build on there because I'm, I'm a nomad. I'm a, I'm a professional multimedia nomad. So if I've done it once, I don't want to do it again. I don't want a routine. My routine is no routine. And so I went into creative and the big agency world, and I was lucky. I mean, GSP, Adidas, the London Olympics, uh, best campaign in the world that year. Uh, Adidas beat Nike for the first time in a long time. And, and, you know, different Vancouver Olympics and branding World Cups and all this shit. But 20 minutes in the parking lot every morning crying and, and realizing that, That I was miserable, and uh, that I didn't know where I was going to go on, how I was going to go on, and I coupled this with what was the breaking point is I had a breakdown where I couldn't leave the house really anymore, and I I couldn't put my hands on a doorknob. Is um, I was diagnosed in university with uh, the flesh eating disease, and it was a false diagnosis, but it it changed me. And that night in hospital, I was pretty sure I was going to die or lose a leg. And it was a false diagnosis, but it was a shock. And then years later, not, not two, four or five years later, I worked in the city of Toronto and I worked in healthcare during the first SARS epidemic. And then that got to me. And then there was the avian flu that started getting talked about. And uh, that hit me. And there was thoughts that the avian flu was going to come here. And I broke down. I mean, I was calling my loved ones <sighs> dozens of times a day. Did you see this headline? Did you see that headline? I became convinced the bird flu was going to kill everyone I cared for. And it took over my mind. And my mom said, why don't you go, uh, have you thought about, she asked me, she didn't say it. She says, have you thought about asking for help and getting help? And so I started and I tried and I, I, I tried two or three different psychologists and uh, didn't work with no connection. And then I found uh, a guy who specializes in cognitive therapy. And I understood for the first time in my life how the brain works and our reactions to normal events, according to what people in cognitive therapy, cognitive science tells us, is that our brains like a computer, but it, it, it starts registering information and creating patterns whether you like it or not so i had created a pattern about a pandemic style event is going to wipe out everybody i care for and it had taken over my life and so i went through the the steps of and what i also love about cognitive uh, science is there's no drugs there's no pills there's no prescriptions it's not psychiatry it's psychology And it's you working on your own brain, on your own computer, and slowly, painstakingly, daily rewiring those circuits so that when you see a headline about avian flu or SARS, you don't start immediately associating that to the death of people you love. You know, like it's, it's that down to the core, but I did it. And it took a few months and I got over it so much so that when mcgill university which is our harvard invited me to go talk about crisis management to an ethics class in their medical school i i said great i'll do it i gave a three hour lecture and it was about there's a hospital on lockdown because there's a pandemic what do you do and how do you manage that crisis and at the i saw i i recreated the whole scenario and I presented three hours of speech and a, a case study on how to deal with that. And then at the very end, I revealed to them that I had a, a, a mental breakdown right about this issue. And for the first time in my life, I got a standing ovation from those people. But that was the beginning of, 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 of fixing my brain and fix, fixing my emotions. And I got to tell you, when this thing started, at, at the start, before we went into confinement, and before we realized how big this pandemic is, I, I started having concerns. I was like, fuck just our, how are you going to handle it? And uh, I handled it so well. I'm so proud of the way I conducted myself. But it's because I, I listened to the advice of the I I, I followed the protocols, right? I put, I programmed my mind to be focused on the right things. And that's the hardest, hardest thing. I think a person can do is stop the magic thinking and focus on the, the right things. And, and my focus became, be the best husband and father you can be. And my goal became Leo has to 20 years from now, has to say to his friends, well, what I remember about the pandemic is I played in the alley every day with my dad. And that's what we did. And that's what we do. And I've become closer to my son than I ever thought I could, I could be. I've become closer to my wife. I've become a, a good father, I think, you know, and, uh, But it wouldn't have been possible if I didn't allow myself to be honest with myself about what's happening in my mind, if I didn't allow myself to cry, if I didn't admit my real emotions, not just to myself, but to my loved ones. So it was a long process. And most recently, there's something I found called inner compass cards And they're, they're, they were made by this, uh, Neil van Lira. So I think he's, he's Norwegian and, uh, they're translated into English, but they're every day there's 49 cards and some of them are inspired by Buddhism and some are inspired by Taoism and, you know, by ancient Mayan culture. But they're all about, about forcing you or reminding you to, to look inside and to, What's your inner compass telling you about your emotions, about who you are and what you're doing? And what I find that they've been doing for me is every day when I do this in the morning, they're just a reminder. Put your energy in the right place. Stop wasting energy on things that you can't control. And I stick to that discipline, bro. Like, a samurai you understand like if someone starts talking to me about the existence of god or not i'll say the only time i'm gonna know for sure is when i'm taking the dirt nap so i don't have time right now to focus on that oh are you scared about this are you worried about this Are you what you you know like like and it's a crisis management mindset the real crisis manager and you you know this better than me is where's the opportunity right like like I, I, and and this is going to sound insane, but at the same time, what's a fire? Yeah, there's risk and lives can be lost. But for a, a firefighter, a first responder, a fighter, a, a fire is a great opportunity to save lives, to show love to people you don't know, right? Like it's about that kind of mindset. So I've just been really trying to work hard on on preparing my mindset. Because we all know in crisis management the best improvised strategy or improvised speech you 'll ever give is the one you wrote ahead of time. Prepare yourself for what's coming, and so i've become like obsessed with that kind of thinking, and i'm sharing it and, and it's funny now that i've shared it openly, a lot of people reach out hey uh, I'm going through this, hey uh, this is happening. Uh, do you have any thoughts and and, I, and I, I tell everyone, hey, I'm not a professional in this, and I'm not going to give you an advice or an opinion. I'm just going to share with you what's working for me, and here are tools that work for me, and hopefully they can work for you. And if they don't, I can refer you to someone who's really better equipped and qualified to, to help you and, and, and do this. But I had to make that decision, and I had to face the facts that uh, the problem was me. It's not anybody else control what goes in and that's how you control what
0: goes out of who you are you know does that make
1: sense am i am i is this making sense to you because it, it it's pretty out there so i you know
0: no and i'll tell you why it makes perfect sense to me so the it's so crazy that you had you know, such a pertinent example as well obviously the flesh eating disease was one thing but then you had sars and you had the bird flu and then here we are now you know with covid but no, you know, the, the, the cognitive therapy, I, I hear from a lot of the first responders that have had, you know, PTSD or, or some other, you know, anxiety, depression, that it's worked well for them to kind of, you know, changing that, you know, fight or flight response they got to flashing to whatever it was that they saw over and over and over again. But with, you know, your story specifically, it really resonates with me because I kind of had an aha moment myself, like just grappling with why you know, why Why do I feel like this whole thing has been so mismanaged? And what I realized was it was just like you crying in the parking lot for, you know, the position. You know, you're empowered now partly because you're your own boss, like you said, and you've set your own routine and you have autonomy. And what I see in in the fire service is, you know, there's a lot of unhappiness because the autonomy's taken away. Good good leadership, we're a well-trained crew, we show up, they say go do your thing, we do our thing, we feel amazing, you know, and 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 everyone's happy, you know. In in bad leadership, it's micromanaged, you know, it it's a complete shit show and, you know, you, there's no feeling of of kind of uh autonomy and therefore well-being. And I feel that what I've seen is so the, the, the wrong message has been purveyed with, with COVID, of course, as an element of isolation, of you know, reducing spread, of trying to protect hospitals. But that doesn't empower anyone. Stay in stay in your house and shut the fuck up. Is is not empowering. So my whole thing, and it kind of it seems like that's where you found yourself with your, your journey, is imagine you're gonna get COVID. Live your life like you're gonna get COVID. So play with your kids, exercise, eat well, meditate, read, you know, get outside, get sunlight on your face, get snow on your, on your bare skin, you know, walk barefoot, Actually, live your fucking life because if you're going to get it, you're going to get it. We all know people that have been isolated, you know, completely that have still got COVID. So this whole message that you can escape from it is complete crap. So. But if you never get COVID, by the end of whatever time this ends up, you know, running its course, you're going to be so much better. And as you said, your relationship with your kids, your wife, your parents is going to be so much better. But if you sit powerless in a room waiting for something to to, to sweep over you, you might never get COVID, but you're going to be in a much worse place a year from now than if you'd actually empowered yourself to do actionable things that, that most likely will reduce the reaction to COVID when you get it.
1: Have you been reading Tsunetomo Yamamoto? Is that what you're trying to say to me? <laughs> no,
0: sounds like a cool have, guy.
1: <laughs> have you read uh, Hagakure, uh, The Way of the Samurai?
0: I haven't yet, yeah, actually. It's one of those ones I should. Even even The Art of War, Sun Tzu, I, I would be lying if I said it. I'd read it cover to cover as well.
1: Well, the, I find The Art of War, the Sun Tzu is... is And my friends in in military strategy and all that they i mean they they understand it but they kind of laugh at it a little not laugh at it but it's it's for them it's pretty pretty simple and it's more politics than tactical but when you look at tsunetomo yamamoto or or like musashi had the book of five rings but then in, in the following century yamamoto wrote a book called hagakure the way of the samurai and my favorite filmmaker jim jarmusch did a film uh, with uh, Forrest Whitaker uh, called Ghost Dog which is is his interpretation of that story of a samurai story uh, in a modern world so so but but a lot of the themes in the book explore explore death and samurai, and he said the only way you can be a proper samurai and i 'm big time paraphrasing is when you accept that you 're already dead, and that 's what I hear when you 're saying. You know, you know what I mean. Like it, it, it's, you're already there, and that's a bit what I've realized. Like the, and it's it's a tough one to reconcile because I know there are millions of people who have who have died from this, and and more will, and people are are sick, and and but at the same time, you have to have a mindset to allow you to manage your world and the world that you're in, and see how can this make me a better version of myself. And it's by accepting, accepting what's possible or what can be and that it's not within your control. So then you start saying, okay, what is within my control? Making my kid lunch, going to pick him up after school, reading, watching things with him, with him. It's not bad if a kid watches shows if you're sitting with the child and discussing, you you know what I mean? Like there, again, it's the same thing. It's balance. and, And how do you do it? But I highly recommend Hagakure, the way of the samurai. And my favorite quote in that book is about, is something he says about a, a storm. And he says, there's something to be learned from a rainstorm. When meeting with a sudden shower, you try not to get wet and you run quickly along the road, but doing things like, passing under the eaves of houses, you still get wet. When you're resolved from the beginning, you will not be perplexed, though you will still get the same soaking. And this understanding extends to everything. So the way I was talking about that with someone, I I wrote that online recently and someone wrote back and said, I'm sorry, I, I don't understand what the hell you mean. And I said, I'm gonna simplify it for you. I said, since the, since the pandemic started, we have a, we live on the top floor, third floor of a triplex and we have a rooftop patio. That's just ours. And since the start of this thing, when there's a major, major rainstorm, I go out and I dance in it on the roof, usually naked, but (laughs) because it's a big storm, nobody can see your nose and none of the neighbors have rooftop decks. You know what I mean? Like it's it's cold, (laughs) but it feels so good and it's liberating and it's it's, but enjoy the rain shower instead of trying to hide from it, just accept it. And once you accept that it's going to rain or that this can happen or that can happen and it's not in your control, like who can control the rain? N- nobody, N- nobody can control when it rains. We can impact if it's clean rain or not, but that's a different discussion. So go dance in that. So I, t- I said, just go dance in the rain. And, and she goes, oh, I get it. Okay. But that's, again, it's,
0: it's a mindset thing. It's a mindset thing.
1: And we're often our own worst enemies.
0: Absolutely. Well, it's funny because I, I obviously grew up in a country where it rains a lot. But here in Florida, our rain is torrential when it comes down. And, you know, I'll be out sometimes and people would be running back to their house. And I tell my son, I'm like, just keep walking. You, you can only get so wet. There's a certain point where if you jumped in a pool, got rained on, whatever, that's as wet as a human being possibly can without drowning. So, you know, once you get to that point, then like you said, then you just enjoy it. And, you know, one of some of his fondest memories are us throwing on board shorts and a T-shirt and going out in the rain. So, yeah, I couldn't agree more.
1: Well, and I say, I say it's what I wash myself and my clothes in so I can walk in it (laughs) too. But uh, I love it. And plus, there's fewer people on the sidewalk. So you have more room to
0: yourself. There we go. Uh, Justin, I got a few more questions. Are you still good on time at the moment? I know we're approaching Absolutely. an hour and a half. Beautiful.
1: Absolutely. You, I, all my time aside, this is really important
0: to me. Beautiful. All right. Well, then. So before we get to, uh, again, framing uh, how do we brand my profession, out know, the associated professions, what was it once you you know, once you found yourself in the, the branding world that made you so successful? I mean, you, you know, work with you know, Star Wars, Indiana Jones and the Olympics and FIFA and, you know, GSP. So what were you bringing to the, say, to the table that was different than any of your competitors?
1: Um, creative courage. I don't want to do what everyone else has done. I don't need to follow a pattern and every single project that i've done whether it's the olympics or a pamphlet for something that you've never heard of the same energy the same belief goes into it and if i don't believe in the product and the project or the product i won't do it but i also believe that my teams and i we are we are creatively courageous and we're trying to do new things all the time and we, we love finding, I love finding an original way of telling a great story, whether it's a film, a TV series, uh, but every ounce of our energy goes into the creative product and we fight for it. I have a client who tells me I'm argumentative and hard to deal with at times. He's been my client for eight years, you understand? He hasn't fired <laughs> me. So he knows I'm a hard headed, tough to take, jerk sometimes, but the intentions are always pure. It's never about money first, okay? And and it's about having creative courage to do something different and to do something based in fact. And then there are all kinds of other things that have to happen after that for for all these things to fall in line. But the most important thing to, to, to quote unquote selling a project Or convincing someone to do a project is not even the idea, the strategy, none of that. It's the passion. When people feel, I've had clients say to me, Justin, we like the strategy, we think you're right, we're not crazy about the idea, but we know you care and you're passionate and your team is passionate. The mandate is yours if you want it but we're gonna redevelop the idea. And sometimes they buy the whole thing off the bat and say, that's what we're doing. But, but it's always been about that. And it's been about, build, and the only way you do that is by building the best teams in the world and surrounding yourself with skills who are better than you at what they do. My partner, my closest partner in this is called Paul, his name's Paul Labonte. We have a website, paulandjustin.ca. We're both writers, we're both photographers, Well, I'll tell you something. He's a much better art director than me, and he has one of the best eyes in the world. And I love it. I'm happy, right? There are people who write better than me. So it's about building a team of experts who know what their expertise is, are open enough to be able to bounce with you, right? Back and forth, brainstorm, share ideas, and who'll take the leap, who'll take a leap of of courage to try something that is totally and completely new
0: beautiful i love that because i think that's uh there's another phrase that we hear in a fire service specifically this there's two things that firefighters hate change and the way we used to do it (laughs) you know so it's 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 crazy but it's true we we get in our own way when it comes to innovation people hate hearing it when i say this but i'll give you a perfect example is the american fire helmet it's the equivalent of a Navy SEAL wearing a World War One tin helmet, but they hang on to it like it's tradition, and they they ridicule on masse the European style helmet, which is better. There's no question; no one can argue. It's it's the same helmet that motorcyclists wear, it's the same helmet that every other kind of head protection you know um, profession wears, pretty much. Um, You know, and and it's, you know, the innovation is better technology you can integrate is better. But there's that push against it because of how it looks, which is insane. But I think, you know, like you said, surrounding yourself with a team, but also having the courage to accept that maybe whether it's as we talked earlier, an education system, a drug policy, whatever, or maybe it's a helmet, or maybe it's the way we look at mental health, maybe the way we've done it up to this point has run its course, and it's time for us to be brave And look for some innovation that might be even better now that we've, you know, found ourselves at the end of this chapter.
1: I mean, absolutely. But that's a mindset again, right? When I was at Sid Lee, we had we printed T-shirts and a new staff employee would get the T-shirt on the first day and it was printed on the front of the T-shirt. Fuck the status quo. And that's how we want you to think you know, or or there's Pat Williams, who was a GM of the Orlando Magic. And 25 years ago, he said something, I'll never forget it. He said, losers say this is the way we've always done things. Winners say there's got to be a better way. And that's life. It's a constant process of renewal and reinvention and improvement. But when you talk to me about that helmet thing, that for me brings me to what I think is and again, I haven't researched this. I haven't sat down with your association and and pondered. Like I, I'm a citizen and I, I work in this field. But that helmet thing is the perfect example, in my opinion, for what ails and hurts your image, your 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 world's image, your your profession's image. And it's that that fraternity style approach. Oh, look at those. European weaklings with their weak ass helmets and look at us with our our steel thing like it's it's that kind of raw raw old school old boys old way And I'm, I'm, I'm saying I'm using men on on uh, on purpose here because it's that uh, what I call the white superiority complex I'm sorry I'm saying it and I'm a white man so I'm allowed to say it but it's it's that whole thing oh no we're better we're this fuck let go Let go. What matters more, that you're tough or that you put equipment on your firefighters that saves their lives and protects them, right? And and that's coming from within. And then in the police corps, we see a lot of these fraternities or these associations that refuse to condemn some of the actions. Well, right away, when these things happen, you lose credibility. And everything about branding is about benefit of the doubt do I give this person the benefit of the doubt that he or she isn't lying to me or, or what they say is true? But, but when you have examples of incidences like the murder of Breonna Taylor and, 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 and the time it's taking to get justice and will we ever get justice, those things harm the image. And when associations don't come out and speak out against it, for whatever reasons, then that harms the image even more. And that's friendly fire. That's not even your opponents attacking you yet. These are actions that right thinking, right, intelligent people see and go, well, fuck, something is wrong. I'll tell you, police officers are my son's biggest heroes. And I've worked with the Montreal police to try to help them. On, on improve their communications because they get attacked in the media, and most of the time it's unfair. Most of the time, but again, you try to come back and say, "Well, remember your pillars, dear police officers." Right before repression, there's communication, there's prevention, there's research. Those are your pillars. You you know, like you, you, it's, it's a tough one. It's, it's a tough call, And, and it, it starts again with. Well, what can we change before you can expect the media to change and the public to change their opinion? What can we change? That's one angle of attack. But then the other angle, too, is are you shining the light on the right examples? Because I look for them, but I see so many examples. I see it on your on your page. I I love your Instagram page because it's great, positive examples. But are we shining the light on enough of those? examples? Are we using those examples to build from the ground up with those examples? We see them, I see them, but we, we just need to multiply them. And, 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 but the whole key is to admitting we got to find a better way. And, and so far it hasn't been working because I think the image of frontline responders in North America is, is still fragile. I'll, I'll use the word fragile
0: yeah well and it's it's been interesting looking now, kind of from the outside, obviously, I retired a couple of years ago, so i'm not you know I'm not surrounded by a fire station anymore. I get to really be a little bit more objective i have even with my career, I work the east Coast, I worked the west Coast I work four different departments I'm from England, so again, it gives me a slightly wider lens, but even like the fire service, you know oh we're as heroes and you know kids love the fire trucks and everything, yes, however. When you look a little bit closer, look in France, um, the sapeurs pompier you know, and, and them protesting their working conditions. And then the next thing, they're, they're fighting with the police, their brothers and sisters, and they're fighting each other. So, you know, again, systemically, they're not being respected. They're not being supported. And, you know, again, nine eleven. I mean, everyone was leaning on the first responders in New York. And then come, I think it was like May, May or June, they were frickin' firing all these EMTs in New York, the NHS in the UK, you know, oh, they just, we're gonna clap for them. Well, that's all well and good, but what the fuck is clapping doing? Is that, yeah. is that funding them? Is that supporting them? Is that giving them PPE? No, it's taking all the responsibility off the, you know, the, the government, the, the taxpayer and putting it squarely on again, the responder, the doctor, the nurse, which is completely unfair. So the other side of this conversation is obviously, the branding, which you know, is is so important, and I agree with you a hundred percent. Our rotten apples have to be cut from the tree, period. And one of our one of the things that's known in our profession is the unions will blanket support everyone, and a lot of our union Jews go to supporting shitbags and keeping them in their that, jobs. But at and the that's same harming, time,
1: all your good people, sorry, no, please, harming, all your good people, they suffer because of that thing you just said there.
0: And then the other side of the conversation is again the support. You cannot expect your fire medic, police, to function at the highest level if you overwork them, if you undertrain them. You know, so that's another part of the conversation that has to be within some of these more grey area mistakes. I mean, George Floyd, so many people fucked up on that scene. You know, including you know fire EMS as well. From 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 the lens that I got, from the video footage that I saw as a fire paramedic. But, you know, the, again, those are extreme examples. I am so proud to stand side by side with, you know, a vast majority of law enforcement. So with all that being said, you know, let's say that we we have, have addressed the issue of getting rid of the, the, the rotten apples. I think that the hiring standards are another area that we can really address that and put people through the crucible like we used to. Um, so a lot of them will fall off anyway. Um, overall... What would be some of the advice that you would give to to police and fire as far as branding? Because we don't think of ourselves as a business, as a product, as a brand. But the reality is in 2021, I mean, I, the professions need to because, you know, we, we keep getting asked, oh, why is there a fire engine on this medical call? Well, if you live in America, they've been doing that for 50 years. So clearly yeah. we dropped the ball somewhere.
1: Well, I mean, again, it's another very huge question. Uh, um, but there's a few things I, I, I want to say in response, and and I'm going to use the first example is nurses, uh, 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 nurses during the pandemic. I have a very good friend who is my aunt Jeanette, who's one of my heroes, who's no longer with us, uh, was a nurse, worked with kids who have spina bifida. And some of my good friends in Ontario, one of the Canadian states, province here, uh, I mean, we've had... <laughs> We've had nurses during the pandemic being told you can't get paid this overtime, and we're going to the Ontario government has cut benefits to some of our nurses, uh, uh, has cut down nurses like they, we have laid off nurses from what I've seen during this thing. So when you talk about that and, and you talk about th- there's another huge issue that I, I, ho- I, I hope that your membership understands the power that you have that you have not harnessed yet because this treatment of, of nurses is unacceptable. Our own prime minister said something to our military forces a few years ago that, um, well, he lost me. He, he lost me on that day <laughs> because we, we had a soldier who, was, who, who, had, who had been in action and had come back and was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and, or, or, and, and couldn't get the help that he needed. And, and suicide here in Canada is the, the, rates of suicide. I mean, it's the number one cause of death in men aged 18 to 34. It's 10 times as worse, uh, on indigenous, indigenous reserves and in our military, uh, because of post-traumatic stress disorder and our own prime minister, when was that, when he was asked about the benefits that our, our military were asking for, uh, for, you know, long-term care when you've retired and mental health support and you know, and the quote was, they're asking for too much. And that made me fucking pissed off because you're prepared to ask these women and men to go give their lives for your ideas and you're not prepared to back them up when they come back. That is, it's a shame. And and so, so again, and, and you get this ugly stuff and you're a guy like me and you say, fuck, how can I be part of the positive? Well, in the in last. Last year, I, I joined. I became a spokesperson. Last two years, I became a spokesperson for a food bank. And I and I went well. And my friends asked me, "Well, why?" I didn't know you were into food banks. I said, "Well, I'm into math." And what do you mean? And I said, "Well, sixty percent of the food we produce winds up in a hole in the ground. Between forty and six, depending on where you live in North America, forty to sixty percent of the food goes winds up in a hole in the ground, which is a waste of food and an environmental disaster." On the flip side, we got a bunch of people, kids mostly, who don't have the nutritious food that they need. So for me, it's a logistics problem. It's a communications problem, and it's a math problem that we can take the food that's going into a hole in the ground and at least start feeding. Like the, the food bank I work with feeds hundreds of thousands of people every month. You understand? It's the biggest one in Canada. So, so you, you start picking where you can have an impact. But for frontline workers, one we need we need our lobby groups to not allow these kinds of statements anymore by our our leaders that they're asking for too much or or, or nurses again carrying the burden for the whole health healthcare system and, and 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 a lot of our doctors too. I'm not faulting any of them. Uh, uh, we're asking so much from them, but we're not really doing a great great job as a society of taking. Care of them. But, but if I was, if I had you guys, uh, you, you folks as, a, as clients, I'd say, first, we have to look at, one, have we defined really and made it clear what our purpose is, right? Because just look at the police. How many times in my life have I, have I responded to people who were critical of the police and say, yeah, and you're right to be critical. You get home Friday night at 1130, and you found that someone's broken in your house. Who do you call? First person you call is the police. You have a fire, the first person you call is a firefighter or the fire station. You're hurt. First person you want to see is a nurse, a doctor. So, so there's hypocrisy in, in our communications and in the way we've allowed these poor images to fester and grow. But the only way to fight it is to empower people to become your spokespersons because you have touched the lives of hundreds of billions of people in the history of time. And even in today's world live, you're touching the lives every day of hundreds of thousands, if not of millions of people all over the world or all over this continent and all over your own country. Well, from a strategic perspective, there are ways of harnessing that power, of expressing it in a line, right? A, a slogan, right? If, think about Nike and Adidas, okay? Nike's message is just do it right? They've said second place is for losers. Nike has said, you don't win silver, you lose gold, right? So they're about victory at all costs. It's a very American uh, uh, type of mindset, very F. Scott Fitzgerald, every uh, American dream, the Green Lantern, all that stuff. Now look at Adidas. Adidas rebranded about 10 years ago. The slogan became Adidas is all in. And all in means two things. As an individual, when you're all in, it means you're invested into what you do, whether you finish first or third or 17th. Did you give 100% of who you are to achieve this result? Yes, then you're all in. And when you're all in and you meet someone else who's all in, you connect on that passion with these other people who are all in to what they're doing with their lives. So that's a much more collective approach to messaging to branding, a group of people walking toward a common goal, and that's what they base their communications on. They sponsor the national uh, football team, soccer team in Germany, Mannschaft, which is about collective, right? It's, It's very Germanic, very Teutonic, very that collective power that we've seen from that part of the world for so long. But Nike and Adidas have something in common. They sell the same shit. It's the same product. It's a sneaker and a T-shirt. You understand? But Nike chose to communicate from the far end of the spectrum on this side, and Adidas is coming to it from the other side, and they consistently hammer their messages home with who they sponsor, how they sponsor, what their message is, right? Who represents their brand? Well, you have to do that. You have the tools. With the tools that we have now that are digital with a with a, a an intelligent smartphone you can reach any community in the world in real time without having to buy media space you develop your own media you're doing this with this podcast in fact this podcast is an example of the kind of thing that needs to happen more of but it has to be coordinated orchestrated by some freak show like me who comes in and says, okay, guys, this is what, this is your just do it. This is what you're about. And here are all the different ways that we can tell it's a process. It's a work process, but it begins with what's the number one message we want to tell people there's not Nike doesn't have just, do it and then four other headlines. It's just do it. Now they they can campaign that out and do something with LeBron and something with Serena and whatever, but they've chosen to own that piece of the, the territory. And, and the big mistake that organizations like yours make in communications is they, well, no, we're all things to all people. And I use the water example to break that thinking, that break that kind of thinking. Because water is something that you and I and everybody listening to this podcast needs to survive. And if you don't have water for, what is it, 48 hours? 30, I don't remember how many hours you can go, 72 without water, and then, like, you can go without food. I fast all the time. I've gone seven days without food. No problem. You can't go without water. So you need it to, you need water to live. And yet, and yet water, if you're selling water, your product isn't for everybody, even though everybody needs water to survive. And they go, well, what do you mean? That's not true. I go, well, you put water in a plastic bottle, and you go see a hipster on the plateau Mont Royal in downtown Montreal, who's, who's just got out of class at Concordia. And you try to tell that person that they should buy your, your polluting plastic bottle. They will never buy, unless they're dying of thirst. They, they ain't, They're not your target market. So if that's true for water, which is the one thing we're sure with oxygen that we need to survive, well, then why the hell wouldn't it be true with any other product? or even a person, right? When we built GSP's brand, we chose to an angle of storytelling, but we stuck to it so that consistently people understood the one element that differentiates us from absolutely everybody else. But to do so, your leaders have to come together. The leaders have to agree. This is a direction that's good for all of us. And it can start regionally and locally. We're seeing that. There's a lot of regional and local things where we're seeing all these examples. But in, nationally and internationally, the leaders have to come together and say, "How do we work together?" And it is super possible. And a lot of people in your feeling is, "Oh, well, fuck, that's impossible," and this guy's crazy. And then, man, you 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 have international organizations. You have international conferences. Christ, you have international s- sporting events that are that are just that just belong to you. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's so powerful hearing it from your perspective. And one thing that resonates with me is like you said, working together and we are notorious for, you know, you you have a city that's in a County and those two entities don't, don't talk. I mean, this happens even where I live. It's ridiculous. So yeah, I mean, firstly, again, that's that ego that we have to get rid of for us to unify and actually push that message. Now, with, you know, with George, one thing that pops out to me from my perception as a, you know, a martial artist and a a fan, and I, you know, I I read the book and, you know, watched uh, documentaries on him. So, you know, I was enthralled with that particular person. But what I got from it was a true martial artist, someone who seemed to walk the walk, someone that came out of bullying and didn't become a bully, became an empowered individual that stayed a good human being. Now that seems to be who he is to me. Was that an alignment of who George actually is and the storytelling that you then use to help in uh, promote him as a fighter and his story within the UFC itself?
1: Well, that's a that's a great question. Because it's the key to everything we've been talking about, specifically with in terms of communications and branding. You cannot bullshit people anymore. We're too intelligent. People are too savvy. We have too many tools to uncover the BS, right? So if it looks, smells, and feels like a turd, and you tell someone this is an O. Henry bar, they're never going to listen to you ever, ever again. You've lost them because you've lost credibility. You've lost the benefit of the doubt. So branding today, storytelling, getting your story right, whether you're a sneaker, a uh, kombucha company, a person just trying to define who you are at the office, your, your identity has to be based on facts. And what we do is it's not so so it's a it's a lot like there's a painting and there's a statue. What's a painting? A painting is a white canvas and you have an idea in your head and you express it using brushes, colors, uh, whatever, but you're inventing something. It's It's an act of creativity. In branding, that's not where the creativity takes place. Creativity is finding the right way to tell the best story, and that's like a statue, right? A brand is like a statue, and what makes up the statue, that big block of information, Pardon me. So what makes up that statue, that big block of information, is you're chipping away at it. And you remove the things from your statue with a hammer and your 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 carving tool that that doesn't belong just to you, that other people can claim. So oh yeah, they can say this too. That's just like them. And what happens when you start doing that process is a, an image appears to you. And what was once a block becomes a very clear image a person an emotion an emoji whatever it is but you get there by removing the extra fluff and getting back down to the core of who you really are or what you really are and what benefit you bring others whether they're consumers or just the public because it's not about buying a product but just appreciating it and and th- that's the second key is is you have to make sure that your image isn't just about what you perceive but what impact you want to have on the people and their perception of you because that's where the truth lies so if you don't do this based on truth you're dead meat so george is a duality and what we found that makes him completely unique is that inside the ring he was the most fearsome fighter That they'd ever had that they that fans have ever seen he's one of the last people you want to fight in the ring because you're going to lose and the, the two people that he lost to he came back and he beat them and one of them twice so that's in the ring but outside the octagon what we discovered is he's the most approachable fighter there's ever been he likes people I was with them in France when we went to the Cannes Creativity Festival to present our case study. And a woman walked up to George with, I mean, a three-day-old baby and said, here, George, can you hold my three-day-old baby so I can take a picture? You know, I'm, I'm not sure Rampage Jackson gets that question a lot. Do <laughs> you understand what I mean? So we knew, knew that our guy was unique in that duality. So that was the starting point. So that all our communications would be focused on what makes them special, unique, and is fact-based. And that's the same thing for, for all the projects that we do. So your, your question is so key because if you build an image based on something that's not true, well, then it's, it's, there's just no, it's like building a house with no foundation. It's a house of cards. And you may not know right away, but over time. And a lot of times it doesn't take a long time, your house crumbles because people realize that it's standing on very, very little, no substance, no substance. And long term, that's just, well, it's it's nothing. It's, it's meaningless.
0: Well, and it's such a powerful kind of, uh, you know, moment of self-reflection too, because the reality is, of course, there are... A spectrum of departments police fire ems that go from incredibly bad to incredibly good so we have this landscape this tapestry this kind of smorgasbord of of you know standards and abilities and i think maybe that's one of the reasons that we struggle in our professions to brand well is because there are you know there are departments where when you call 911 or 999 or whatever number you you know call in your respective country well trained, well educated, you know, respectful, compassionate men and women will show up and they will mitigate their disaster and everyone will go home safely. But on the other side of the spectrum, you might get a medic that intubates your child's stomach, like one of my guests, and he, he dies paralyzed in the back of an ambulance. You might get, you know, your teenage son shot reaching for his driving license in a, in a, in a glove box. And so maybe one of the reasons that we're struggling to brand is because we haven't held that bar high across our entire profession. And that, that again, just me be very clear. That's an administrative level, but that's also at a, you know, a community and political level supporting an organization so they can hire the best, train the best and maintain those skill and and fitness levels as well. So maybe that's why we're struggling with branding is because we don't have consistency across our profession.
1: Yeah. I mean, that that would be, and then, and then, so I, I listened to you, and I said, so why is that happening? Right. Cause that's the key. What you're saying is absolutely true. So you have to ask yourself, well, why are these things happening? Is it because people are afraid of the treatment they're going to get in the media? Or, or is it because, you know, like, uh, I always talk about Jesse Jackson, right? Someone asked uh, Jesse Jackson, how the media covers him, And he said, I could be in a boat, and there'd be two drowning children in the water, and I could walk on water and go save the lives of those two children. And tomorrow, the headline in the newspaper would read, Jesse Jackson can't swim. And, and you laugh, but, but right, there's a, there's a paralysis, too, that comes from, well, Christ, every time I have tried to open my, my door or something, I, I've paid for it, because I just can't seem to get the benefit of the doubt or I just can't seem to get what I think is, or what we think is fair coverage. But that's where, that's where having a plan in place, a strategy in place, and, and acknowledging the things that you were talking about. Error is human, right? People will make mistakes. There are people who cause death who weren't trying to, they made a mistake. They were the best trained. They're human. Go. That's one thing. There's isolated mistakes, and then there's there's real fact. But that takes a strategy. It takes leadership. It takes a desire to address the real issues, and that's that's courage. And 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 courage is tough as individuals. Well, if it's tough as an individual, imagine how hard it must be to to build that consensus. And so, again, as much as I. I Criticize our head of state for what he said to the military, or or, or what the Ontario Premier and his treatment of of uh, nurses. At the same time, I try to understand and ask myself, okay, why are these things happening this way? And sometimes you see a political leader that you go, well, this person is just in it for him or herself, and we see it a lot. But then you look at people like President Carter, who's 95 years. Old and I think he's proven that he's really about the collective greater good. You know what I mean? Like you want a guy who's got the benefit of the doubt. That's a dude who's got the benefit of the doubt, or that that, that unreal hero that you you shared who passed this week at the, at the age of 101, right? Like, like those are the examples, but they're they, they have to be part of a coordinated effort. You have to accept ahead of time and play plan for where the criticism is going to come from, from where the opponents are going to attack you from. What, what's your weakest link, right? That's the lesson that George teaches us. He goes, don't go work on your strengths, go work on your weaknesses. Yes, you have to practice and improve your strengths, but you're only as strong as your weakest link. And it's, it's simple. But just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy. And we don't have a lot of compassion and we don't have a lot of, of positivity and, and what well, we do, we just don't hear about it as much. But I, I believe we're starting to see it more. And, and I believe we're at the beginning of this process, at the beginning uh, for all the, the subjects we've been discussing uh, uh, today.
0: Beautiful. Well, I I do too. I'm I'm uh, incurably optimistic. <laughs> I Always have been. You know, I just think you have to get angry and shake the tree and not be afraid, as you said earlier, to you know to push the issue in a diplomatic yet you know aggressive way. But it's funny you use George as a, an example again. I think he's he's the perfect analogy because one thing I admire to him as a fighter is he would be up against, say, a great striker. Or let me say, say a great wrestler. I mean, George obviously had a, a strong um, karate background initially, and he would out-wrestle the wrestler, and he would out-box the boxer, you know, and that, that's what always amazed me is, as you said, not just work on your strengths, but work to the point where your, I mean, excuse me, work on your weaknesses, but work to the point where your weakness becomes your greatest strength now. So excel at their weaknesses. So I think that that is a huge analogy. Like never, ever rest on your laurels. Always be working to improve individually as an organization or, as you said, even internationally as a profession.
1: Well, what's even more remarkable about a guy like George is that the data on on what kind of fighter he is has been out now for many, many years. And when he was still fighting, there was a lot of data about how he fights. And he'd fight opponents who were always the number two guy in the world, always hungry, right? So they're on their life path trying to achieve their dreams. And and they're prepared to die for what he has around his belt. So that day, both their lives are going to change. They're on the same path. But but George had to be constantly reinventing himself. And, and people ask me all the time, what's the secret? The secret is six times a day, twice a day. And that's just the beginning beginning of the story that's just how much he trains when when he had his he had a private gym we called it the bat cave where i had a key a few of us had keys and 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 so that's where you know he could go train with with other guys and just not be bothered because it's hard to be in a gym if you're gsp and and like you know he'd be doing i don't know a bench press and there'd be someone coming up taking photos while he's bench pressing it's it's insane right so so but anyway we'd be in the. I go to the Batcave bathroom, and and I have to sit down. So I look up, and in the wall in front of me are all these dots. And I go, George, what are these dots in the bathroom? And he goes, well, when I go to the bathroom and I know I'm going to have to sit there for a few minutes, I put those dots on the wall to train my eyes. I go, what? He goes, yeah, I have a metronome on my phone, you know, the talk-talk thing from a piano, talk-talk. Tuck, tuck. So every time the metronome talks, tucks, my eyes go from one point to the other, and I'm working the muscles in my and my retina to make them stronger. You wow. Know, you understand how how extreme and what kind of attention to detail that is? Well, of course it's attention to detail. He is arguably the greatest mixed martial artist that's ever walked. So, or he's one of them. Well, that's how you achieve that. Well, well then what I say is just let that inspire you you know what I mean like it, it the decisions that we make uh, are, are clear like I've got a lot of kids who who say I want to work with you and I want to be a writer and I want to be this I go, okay what are you reading well if you can't talk passionately about the last three four five books and what you read well you're full of shit you're making decisions right if you want to if you want to make films but you're not watching Watching any films and you're not or alternatively if you say i want to do 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 but you spend half your day watching tv or sitting on the sofa you're just lying to yourself you're you're it's that magic thinking and the magic thinking is just well it's just a waste of time a waste of energy
0: yeah i couldn't agree more absolutely couldn't agree more well we have been chatting for over two hours now so i'm going to uh, transition some closing questions so i can let you get on with you know that chasing sorry. your goal, that
1: winded man.
0: No, no, I've loved it though. I absolutely love it. So, um, so as you said, you wrote the way of the fight, which is uh, George's uh, biography. You've got Wayology. um, and then what was the name of your French book again?
1: In French, it's Le Livre du Don, the book of giving. And it was uh, I interviewed twenty-eight different people about the place that giving occupies in their lives. So, giving of love, giving of death. I had a woman who gave her sister. Her critically ill sister death uh giving a blow job giving your virginity giving in every way i could imagine it
0: brilliant all right and is there an english version of that nope perfect i'm gonna have to get it and then work on my to. french I, then
1: <laughs> i'm a control freak and i can't let anybody else translate my stuff from french to english but i also don't have time to translate it yet because i've had publishers reach out to me i just got to find time if you have a time machine, though, I, I, that makes time, I, would, I, I will buy one.
0: Beautiful. If I find one, I'll definitely let you know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, those are your books. You mentioned Haga Akurai. Um, are there any other books that you love to recommend?
1: Yeah. Um, you talked about The Art of War. There's a book called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. And Pre- uh, Pressfield, P-R-E-S-S-F-I-E-L-D. He's the guy who wrote The Legend of Bagger Vance. Uh, he wrote uh, 300, uh, oh, no, no, the, um, the Gates of Fire about the Battle of Thermopylae, that Spartan army I was talking about earlier. And he wrote a book called The War of Art. And it's a, it's a life changer for me uh, um, uh, because it's about, it's about fighting procrastination or what he calls resistance. And I'll just, there's one page where he talks about, for example, Somerset Mom, who's one of my favorite writers. And a woman asked Somerset one day, she says, do do you write only when inspiration strikes? And Pressfield responds that mom answered, yes, I do. And luckily for me, it strikes every morning at nine o'clock sharp. So for anyone out there who has a a plan or something that they want to do and that they're finding magical ways of of procrastinating, uh, every single creative in the history of the world has this issue. Uh, some of us, our partners, lock us in rooms and won't let us out till we've produced 20 pages of a manuscript, you understand? So we're all in this together. So The War of Art is one for motivation. Hagakure, The Way of the Samurai by Tsunetomo Yamamoto is a one for for developing a, a philosophical perspective that's unique and that reflects who you really are. Uh, there was a book in French called by Jean Giannot, Giono, G-I-O-N-O, uh, L'homme qui plantait des arbres, The Man Who Planted Trees. I am certain that one has been translated into uh, English. And it's, it's a story of a man who plants a forest. And it's simple and beautiful. And I, uh, I love it. And um, I'm going to give another recommendation. It's just a book I read a few days ago. And it's called Hunter with Harpoon. And it's one of the most important pieces of indigenous literature in the history of our world. And it's, I think the first indigenous novel that was ever published are written in multiple languages. And it's a drama, okay, it's a drama, but it's, um, I think first responders specifically will understand there's a, um, an Inuit village that's attacked by a polar bear. Uh, and they realize the, the bear is sick is suffering from some form of insanity. So the men in the village go after it because they have to kill the bear or else it's going to kill too many humans. And it's the story of these nine, nine men and this village and a neighboring village. And, and yeah, I just uh, loved it. Or if you need an escape, Mr. Gwynn by Alessandro Barrico. I think he's the greatest living writer. And that book, Mr. Gwynn makes me angry because, uh, It's the greatest thing I've ever read in my life. And I'm jealous, very healthily, very happily jealous. And I reread it every year. So there's a there's just a few. But, bro, we could talk three days about great readings and great books and things like that. Uh, Reading is what is the difference maker for me. Uh, I don't watch a lot of TV. I I don't consume that much as much content as I do read Uh, and books. I love books.
0: I love it. There's so many new titles I've never heard of before, so thank you so much. I'll definitely add those to my list as well.
1: What about you? Give me a couple that I can go and, uh, and check
0: out, please. Well, have you read Tribe, Sebastian Junger?
1: No, you mentioned it in an email, and I've not read it. So that, that I wrote down on my list, uh, 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 Tribe for sure, because I've heard of that guy too. So he, he, uh, he's on there.
0: Beautiful. Um, Man's Search for Meaning, Victor Frankl.
1: Oh, yeah, the logo
0: therapy. What a game changer. Yes. Well,
1: that's a great example for this situation we're in now.
0: Yep, exactly. I mean, a complete lack of gratitude going on at the moment.
1: Well, yes, and and at the same time, focusing on yourself and getting through something. Anyway, yeah, I love Viktor Frankl. Give me another one.
0: For for fiction, um, uh, oh, God, there's one. Oh, Shogun. Um, I forget who wrote it now, but I think Richard... Richard. James Clavel. Clavel, yes. I love Shogun. And then there's another one, Birdsong. Song. Um Sebastian oh, yeah, Fox. Uh, yes. Yes, yeah. another one. So that that would be my my top, a couple of fiction, a couple of uh you know um uh, non fiction. But yeah, those were great. Uh, fantastic. Beautiful. All right, well then then movie wise, um you mentioned uh obviously where are we here now? Uh, Chakapesh. Um, was the documentary you did on the orchestra. And then you yep. also talked about Ghost Dog. Are there any movies or documentaries aside from that that you love?
1: I think the best documentary I've ever seen in my life, and I, I, uh, I'll i change opinion in 72 hours, and it changes every 72 hours, but I was talking about it yesterday, is a film called Finding Vivian Mayer. And it won the Oscar a few years ago, I think, for best documentary. It's um, But it's about... It's the story of Vivian Mayer, who who died and was unknown, and a man discovers her work by chance, and it turns out that she's one of the greatest photographers in the history of the world, and she was going to die in anonymity, or she died, and she was going to remain anonymous, and we were never even going to see her work, because it was about to be burned, and this guy falls upon it, digs, does research, and made this film, it it just blows my mind. So finding Vivian, if you don't like it in the first 20, uh, two minutes, then turn it off because, but you'll love it right away. So that's, that's, that's one of my favorite, uh, uh, favorite films. I love everything Jim Jarmis, uh, Jim Jarmis d- does, so I, I watch Ghost Dog all the time. And in fact, they just reissued it on the Criterion Collection in DVD and Blu-ray. So it's, it's such a great, a great film and shot so interestingly in, in black and white. And, um, and so, yeah, those are, those, those are a couple uh, uh, in addition to my film. Just kidding.
0: no no absolutely Um, i mean that's the thing there's so many great films and obviously you directed in the documentary you know space but you talked about that shift you talked about people kind of awakening again and i truly feel that podcasts are part of that i mean i love you know there's so many other people's podcasts that i love that definitely led me to to doing this myself but also documentaries i think that there's there's an absolute hunger for information for education as you said like we, we didn't get it at school but now we can we can productively sit in front of a television sometimes and learn you know about these incredible men and women learn about some of these injustices learn about you know so many different things so i find do- the documentary movement that's really kind of uh, i don't know just just found its footing again is so exciting
1: yeah no i really agree there's great art and and now we're seeing more art from from all kinds of different places where we, we never got to see this art, we never got to see read these books, read these stories, and, and so there's a richness of content right now that's you you still have to sift through it a lot of stuff because there's a lot of garbage there's a lot of garbage but but there's so much wonderful, great stuff that's coming from everywhere, so it's just exciting there's too much there's not enough time and, and then and then you go back you start looking I was talking about criterion well. All the reissues, their channel. Like, I was just rewatching a documentary about the 64 Tokyo Olympiad, you know, and then I want to rewatch all the Ken Burns stuff, the baseball uh, film, the jazz film. So, there's, we're, we're in a, we're in the golden age of content creation. So, so, um, yeah, there's a, there's an abundance of, and thank God that means we can, you can still make a quality, intelligent product and reach an audience. So, that's, it's not just, It's not just Big Macs, you know?
0: Absolutely. Well, you mentioned as well about, you know, the whole, um, you know, getting on on a particular television show and and forging your own path. Now, I think that's what we're seeing with with podcasts with, you know, like Amazon has, has really enabled every man and woman on the planet to tell their story, write a book. The barrier to entry is very, very low now. So I think that you know, the, the filtering that was having to get a publisher, having to get a studio to okay your film has been removed. And you can sit down on your little laptop, make a movie, upload it to YouTube, and put that information out there for everyone to see.
1: Yeah, that's a redefinition of power. And we've seen it. We, we're, we're getting more and more power in the hands of people. And that's a very good thing. We're seeing struggles with that and growth pains. The capital is, is in my opinion, personal opinion, respectfully, an example of this. But, but the flip side is, is imagine all the great things that are going to come from it.
0: Yeah, I couldn't. Have...
1: Power in the hands of people. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead.
0: No, no, no. no sorry. Um, all right. So the next question, is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world?
1: Well, I think you can't go wrong with George. Obviously, we, we've talked about that. Um, I don't know if it's a person in particular, but it would be more of a person who's lived through the experience uh, r- right now uh, and, and the good, both the good and the bad. You know, I'm I'm uh, I'm working on a biography or a biographical project with with someone who was in uh, the residential school system here in Canada, an indigenous person who's lived uh, experiences of both kinds with with uh, first responders, but uh, whose whose voice is important. So it's not for me about a, a who it is, but a casting on the type of person. And it'd be the kind of people who have lived all kinds of experiences, negative and positive, who can talk about it so that we start the dialogue. What I love about this is dialogue, listening to you. And I obviously agree on a lot of these things. I'm, I'm wide open to being challenged on all on, but uh, on, on these subjects, too. But it, it's it'd be more un- what uncomfortable conversation can you have? And, and it would be more more in terms of that so that having new kinds of conversations will will hopefully give us new pathways forward. So there's people like George and, and, and all of that, uh, uh, but people who have lived experiences who, you know, we need to pull off the Band-Aid and, and just move forward. So it'd be that kind, it'd be more casting that I could recommend.
0: Beautiful. I love it. And I think that's, that's the problem is a lot of the indigenous voices don't get heard very often. As I've reached out before, I haven't just the the particular individuals I reached out to, it it never, you know, materialized. But, uh, you know, that's, that's one of the things as an Englishman living in America, I get a lot like, oh, you're so lucky you have, you know, this rich history. I'm like, well, you guys do too. (laughs) You know, it wasn't just when, you know, the Europeans came over, there was this rich history prior to that. And even prior to that, I mean, Mongolia coming over, you know, becoming Native Americans it goes back and back and back and back but yeah I think a lot of the uh, a lot of the you know indigenous voices have a lot to teach us I think I think as we mentioned at the beginning of the conversation in some areas we've strayed way off the path and I think we have to go back to ancient wisdom to kind of rein it back in
1: well there's that great book right 14 1491 the Americas before Columbus. Because people don't always realize that there was an America before Columbus. You know, fourteen thousand years of it so far that we've we've discovered there were people here. Uh, um, yeah, I, I I totally agree. Uh, uh, that's the solution is understanding the richness of it. like Thanksgiving. Do people realize, especially in the U.S., what Thanksgiving is all about and and who who's behind the survival of the colonials who were here. I mean, the whole history of where Thanksgiving comes from. I mean, again, let's acknowledge facts. Oh, you want a film? I'm going to give you a film. Here's a film. No, no, no. It's called Rumble. R-U-M-B-L-E. And it's about the invention of rock and roll. And it's a documentary produced by a Montreal company. And I know the, the producer and I know the director. Uh, they're wonderful people. I've met with them. Uh, one of them is uh, He's in he's in my film, but I watched this film Rumble, and it's about the history of indigenous presence in in rock music and jazz and all of uh, musical genres. But focused on rock, you got to watch that movie, and and people listening have to watch this movie because. And I'm gonna again, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give you the punch about what the whole movie's about, but I'm gonna give an example. Jimi Hendrix is indigenous, and he comes from a tribe of people whose skins are naturally darker. And because of their treatment and how poorly they were treated and victims of systemic racism, they, they passed themselves off as African-American, as black people in the south of the US. Really? They, they were treated better as African-Americans in the southern U.S. states in the first half of the last century than they were as indigenous peoples in their tribe. So think about that for a second. And, and, and it's the movie, uh, so this, the, I thought I knew jazz. I th- I'm, a, like, I'm a nerd, I love music history, I, I played jazz. My teacher was a jazz legend, Billy Robinson from Texas. He played with Archie Shep on Attica Blues. He he toured with Charlie Mingus. You understand? That was my guy. And I thought I knew music. And then I watched that film. Rumble there.
0: Beautiful. I love it. I end up watching nearly all the documentaries that people recommend as well, because that's the thing. You sit down and you're like, oh, you know, you've done a full workday. Like, what am I going to watch now? And it's either some like you said, some of the shit, or now I have this library of awesome suggestions. So um, brilliant! Absolutely fantastic. So thank you. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure where people can find you. Um, what do you do to decompress?
1: I train every single day. Every single day, I break a sweat and I exercise for a minimum of thirty minutes. Whether it's a intense walk and with my dog or whatever, but exercise is an absolute must. Every single day, and like my gold medal winning Olympian friend Adam Couverton told me, a day without exercise is like a birthday cake without candles. It's not that eloquent, but you get the picture. So that's that's one thing I do. The second thing I do is I meditate absolutely every single day. Um, meditation is intimidating for a lot of people, and they're right; it's difficult. Uh, we don't realize how difficult it is to do nothing. If you think about it, meditation is about that. It's stopping everything to be in a moment and not let outside thoughts even come and pollute the beauty of the present moment. Well, that's hard. So I practice every day and meditation can be four deep breaths done properly. This has been proven scientifically to help reduce your level of anxiety, help calm your system okay four deep breaths properly done through the nose out through the mouth, counts for eight etc cetera, etc cetera. and it goes from four breaths to sometimes 45 minutes every single day I play with my boy with our son I play with my wife days when uh, I'm having a bit of a harder time I found something that really helps me when I'm down is I I look in the mirror and I force myself to smile for five minutes. Those are the tougher days, but it works. I use those inner compass cards now that help me. I control the intake of substances, alcohol, cannabis, all those things so that they don't become uh, uh, crutches. And uh, I just try to laugh. I try to surround myself with people who are positive, who are open-minded, and I try to shut out and not let hate or my own mistakes, my own raw emotions get the better of me. And that is a constant struggle, and I'm on a constant journey to try to get better. But those are parts, those are all things in my daily routine uh, that I do, and the hardest thing. The hardest thing is uh is being nice to myself if you want to know the truth and giving myself a break and i 'm working on it, and i 'm getting better every single every single moment every single day that 's it
0: well, I love it, and I think you know everyone listening can relate to that you know I think. I think only the, the mentally ill wake up every day and are just totally impressed with themselves. You know, we have that self doubt that I, I suffer from the imposter syndrome, you know, like no one knows. I actually don't know what the hell I'm doing every day. <laughs> so, you know, I think that's so important to, to reframe. I think the, the controlling the cannabis and alcohol. I'm actually almost two weeks now not drinking. And again, it's not some, I hit crisis, I have to stop, you know, I'm going to be sober or whatever. It's just that. I recognize that I'm leaning on it again and um, it gets in the way. And, you know, I'm sure at some point I'll have a drink down the road, but it was absolutely a crutch. So I think, you know, over and over again, I hear time with the family, I hear time in nature, I hear exercise and I hear meditation. So hopefully enough people will hear so many of these guests leaning on that too that they'll realize that there's something to it because it's the most magical thing ever you just sit there and you be present at whatever level you're at whatever methodology, you know, meth- method oh my god i kind of spit the word out now whatever type of uh, meditation that you're doing but it works and we've got so much white noise in the world that just being present and acknowledging this this self-talk um i think is so powerful and, and you you can't help but grow from it
1: well, it's, it's one of the things I keep reminding myself is my role. What's your role? What are you trying to be? And, and recently with this, this rebranding of our Major League Soccer team, there was, like I said, a, a lot of hate messages. And then there were columnists in, in some of our national media here, uh, old white men in their 70s saying they, they hated the work and it wasn't Quebecois enough for them. And they attacked me personally directly and I went down on one knee I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make a I'm not gonna lie to you it was hard I I got a it was a shot in the liver and I went down and I, and when I was down there I started feeling sorry for myself and I started asking myself fuck why isn't why aren't any of the people I've worked with or coming out and saying hey I know Justin he did this he did that and you didn't look properly and where's I started thinking where's my knight in shining armor how come I?" And then, and then I started laughing, bro, uncontrollably, because I realized no one's coming for you, Juss. You're the knight. That's your job. You were born a lottery winner. You're a white male from Canada. Your parents have master's level educations. They're still married. You were given every tool a person could possibly have in the history of the world to make change. So that's your job no one's going to come lift you up you lift others up and and that changed me i went from a dark place to smiling to being resolved to saying yeah i am going to build this movement it's a movement about inclusion right we made a film that's in in many languages right uh French, Mohawk, English. We have three female voices for a professional sports franchise. We're telling people, if you love this city and you love the, this open game, you're welcome. So, you know what I mean? Like it was about my role and what I want to be and what I think I can be. And again, it came back to the mindset and and, and it, it just helped me. It's funny. It takes a while, eh? but I I tell, when I talk to a student, I try to talk to a lot of student groups in high schools in this, and I I tell them, I show them my back and I go, I have a virtual bullshit converter right here. And all the hate and all the criticism and all the stuff that people throw at me, I just lean forward so that it goes right into my bullshit meter, uh, bullshit converter, because the converter converts it to energy. So that on Friday night or Saturday morning, when I'm, when everyone else is resting or I can keep going. I can keep focused on my goal. I'm energized to, to fulfill my role and try to be all humility aside. And I apologize for this, this ec- excess of, of, but play my role and be a leader for, for, for collective and positive change.
0: Beautiful. Well, I just realized we talked about so many different things we didn't really discuss. You know the the history of the logo. So let's just take a moment we'll and that, talk about uh, that.
1: We'll do that next time. I, I mean, uh, how many more hours do you have?
0: <laughs> well, we can talk about it for for you know. I, I'm fine on this end. But so what what did the the logo look like? What was the choice of branding? And then tell me about the kind of inclusion behind the new logo. Well,
1: the. the um... First, you have to understand the context of Major League Soccer, right? And, and, uh, and the president of the team uh, uh, in Montreal keeps talking about what's happening in global soccer. And MLS used to be a league where you sent, you know, a lot of uh, famous aging players came, right? Uh, 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 Didier Drogba came to Montreal toward the end of his career. Well, now Major League Soccer is becoming one of the most important feeder leagues in the world right? Uh, uh, Jonathan Davies who plays for Bayern Munich has been voted one of the uh, uh, Antonio Davies, sorry, one of the best 11 players in the world. Well, he's from Major League Soccer. The transfer window shut a couple of days ago and we saw some of uh, MLS players going to clubs all over Europe. So the notion and the, 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 the image of Major League Soccer is growing to a point where we're becoming one of the world's more important leagues. And that's only going to continue. On top of that, we have 5 billion football fans all over the world, right? And they're going to see Major League Soccer grow in importance. Well, we first, we realized we needed to rebuild the brand around the identity of our city. The name before was Impact. And it, it, it worked for, a, it, it served a lot of great purposes in our own market, but in a growing digital global market, we wanted to really represent the city of Montreal. So we rebranded around the identity of the city and our people. And there's a couple of key facts, and I won't give you the whole story because it's a long case study, but one, in Montreal households, there's a study that shows that 30 different languages are spoken in Montreal language, uh, households that are not French or English, but what combines and connects everybody is our ability to communicate in both those languages. So that means people are listening to each other and making an effort to communicate in any language with any tool they have at their disposal. And that's a very Montreal thing. Right. You come to Montreal. It's a global city. You can walk on the street and feel safe and meet strangers and make friends and blend in. So, which leads to the second piece of data that was really important. Montreal is more than a multicultural center. Toronto, for example, is the world's most multicultural city from what I, the data I've seen. More cultures live there, but they tend to live together. So you have Little India and Chinatown and, the, where, and Little Italy, where there's a concentration from an ethnic perspective. Well, Montreal is what's considered a, an intercultural city. So when people move here from, a, from somewhere else, they choose a more centrally located neighborhood. That's, they don't base their decision on where they live on ethnicity, but rather on, on low incidence of clashes between cultures you understand so we're an intercultural people so we try to build a movement that's building on those strengths of people who come together so the logo is a representation of that one it's it's a circle like an island right and we took icons from the greatest period of of Montreal's creative design history, the 60s and 70s, when the world started talking about Montreal designers and creatives during Expo 67 and after that, the 76 Olympics. And so we have visual cues from that period in a contemporary setting. But what the logo represents is a movement of people toward a center, toward a common goal where we all find each other. And a lot of people have said the logo in the end, the arrows, the M's for Montreal combined look a bit like a snowflake, and 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 my response was well, yes. And what's great about a snowflake is yes, on its own, some people will insult you and they say, oh, a snow, you're just a snowflake, and it's weak and this. Well, that's if you're looking at the glass half empty. If you look at the glasses at the glasses half full, you see that. No two snowflakes are alike. Uh, alike. So it's, it's a story about individuality and the ability to express your individuality, to be a free person, whoever you are. And when all these people come together, well, that's, that's not a snowflake anymore. It's a storm. And you can't beat a storm. But it requires people coming together as one. And so that's the kind of movement our slogan has become it went from tous pour gagner, everything to win, to always forward, which we think is is something that's pretty unique to us. Always forward. That's the way we want our team to play on the field. We want them to go and score goals and win games. But off the pitch, we want to be leaders, a little bit like FC St. Pauli, uh, who were the first to have an anti fascist fan supporter movement, a little bit like Barcelona right camp now, the Catalan spirit, the individuality, Quebecers and specifically Montrealers, we have always been a bit of an underdog and always assumed our identity as different. So this is a movement that's built around that. But there are some people who are resistant to change. And there are some people who don't wish to hear some of the things that they're hearing and seeing some of the things that they're seeing. And I will use those two columnists, Caucasian in their seventies, who are resisting this kind of change. And and we're building this movement and we're quite encouraged because it's in our first week, we had 2.2 billion global impressions, which I think is the biggest announcement in the world of sport in the history of our country. And our swag, our, our, our gear, it, we're, we're breaking. I mean, we sold more in our first 48 hours than in the entire last year. So, so it's been really polarizing and there's been a lot of local debate. But we're, we're really trying to build a, a, a bit like, a, you know, football, a bit like a Lyon. You know, in France, they won. They had a period they won eight consecutive French championships but that's where Benzema came up who plays at Real Madrid now so they they built a feeder system they built a farm system that develops young talent but also works in a in a business setting where they can continue being competitive for championships yet sell players to other clubs because of course in in football and soccer there's not there's not as much trading as there is buying and selling of assets so all of these things together create this this new identity, that's CF Montreal. And if anyone wants to see the film or learn more, it's CFMontreal.com. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so we, we launched the jersey l- later this month. Um, or Sorry, I'll, I'll start it again. We're going to launch the jersey in February, and uh, we're pretty excited about that, too. It's, it's always a big, big event, jersey launch day in, in all of football and in Major League Soccer specifically.
0: Beautiful. Well, I'm glad that we managed to to cover that in the end because I think that, again, ties in with a lot of what we talked about, having the courage to change, to move forward, to progress. So that's a great analogy to kind of put the the candles back on the birthday cake. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and
1: for every negative message I receive, I also receive positive ones. And it's important I underline that because I want to thank those people who are encouraging and who are saying, we know this is important. So I just want to make sure I'm not just being negative. It's super important. We got so much love and so much support, and we're seeing more and more of it now come out. Now that the dust is settled and people are excited, and I sense that movement coming together. So it's, it's really encouraging. But again, we have to face facts and learn, learn from these things, because if not, we won't get better. And I just want to get better. I just want to be the best version that I can be of myself. And if I can do that, I'll be an honorable man with nothing but a bleeding heart.
0: I love it. All right. Well, then for people listening, I'm sure they're absolutely engrossed. Where are the best places to find your work online, any websites, and then which social media do you have?
1: Um, I killed Twitter. I'm on Facebook, but the best place, Justin Kingsley Artist on Facebook is easy to follow. I'm on LinkedIn. I love connecting with people on LinkedIn. And I'm on Instagram as Mr. Justin Kingsley. You get a lot of beautiful photography from my farm and uh, all my contents up there as well. Uh, I manage all my social platforms. I don't have a huge, huge following. It's not what I'm about. I have my projects and the people I work with, but I, I love interacting. So anyone has ideas, want to send me stuff or just follow, uh, that, that's the easiest place to find me. I am uh, just finished my first novel, so hopefully that'll be out in the next couple of years. I finished my second film. It's the true story of a man who's under house arrest, but he's never home. So it's a documentary <laughs> comedy. But that'll be for our next one. But uh, yeah, so those, the two main ones are, are Instagram and and LinkedIn. And uh, I go on, Fa- I took Facebook off my phone, but I go check once or twice a week uh, uh, just uh well, just to be responsible and be in contact with uh, with people who want to follow the work
0: beautiful well yes i would love to do another one and hear more um you know in a part two down the road but uh, i just want to say thank you so much i know we connected and uh, thank you to greg for uh, greg jackson for connecting us initially but this has just been an incredible conversation you know and we, and we connected for initial you know the the connection was made because of george actually but when I delved into who you are and what you did, I was like, my God, there is so much, you know, to talk about with you specifically. So, and here we are over two and a half hours later, yeah, part it's one.
1: It's <laughs> just flown by. I didn't realize we'd been talking for this long. I'm, I apologize to everyone who has small ears for my long windedness
0: <laughs> no, but I want to just want to say thank you <laughs> thank you for for telling you know not only your your story as far as um the lens you have with the branding and the work that you do, but also you know being vulnerable like so many people are on this podcast and you know telling your story it's going to resonate with people ab- about the mental health struggles about the you know, the childhood and some of those other areas so thank you so much for taking so much time and and being so courageous with your story today
1: well James you and your colleagues you're you're my heroes and you can always count on me always anytime reach out to me anytime you guys can count on me you're you're anyway I won't get all emotional but this really means a lot to me so thank you for having me on and thank you for letting me go on but uh, this is uh, like he says in Casablanca this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship I hope anyway